Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome. All right. So excited to be here with you guys again. Uh, this is uh, a big week. Uh, welcome to session 107 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. So this is happening in real time, of course, two days before the beginning of Mythmoot. Uh, and of course, in Signum World, we're all running around and getting everything squared away and uh, uh, getting our families <laughs> prepared to be without us for several days and all that kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, lots of fun and excitement and anticipation of all the great things that are going to be going on. I've spent a good deal of time today with the schedule, just kind of looking over things and uh, getting ready for the weekend. It's going to be a really wonderful time. I wanted to remind everybody, of course, there's still time to sign up for Mootcast uh, if you haven't, so you can still join us virtually, even if you can't be there in person. Uh, just go to signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot, uh, and there should be a link there to register for Mootcast, so that should be all set. So anyway, um, uh, I, I would encourage you definitely to uh, to join us there if you can. Uh, it's going to be an awesome time. Um, <clears throat> there's a whole lot of things, as I say, going on there. One thing, if you are uh, coming uh, at our... Uh, so uh, it's kind of really... Everyone involved in exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, is all, they're all going to be there. Uh, uh, Trish is going to be there. She's going to be, uh, uh, Maven, she's going to be there. She's going to be giving a, a paper and appearing on panels and stuff. Uh, Druid's Fire is going to be there. She's going to be participating in uh, uh, one of our panels uh, on Tolkien and gaming uh, and also uh, uh, playing in the, uh, the the tabletop game. And of course, Valoria is also going to be there. She's going to be co-hosting uh, what we call the Room of Requirement uh, at uh, Mythmoot. Uh, so, Valoria, want to tell people a little bit about what you guys get up to in the Room of Requirement? It's pretty awesome. Oh, hey there. Uh, so, yeah, Valoria here. Good to see everybody at the beginning. Um, gosh, it's early. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, that's right. So, I will be uh, manning the uh, Room of Requirement uh, with uh, with my fellow tangent artists uh we're we're sponsoring it and we're gonna have uh lots of fun stuff to do if you just uh want to sit and relax we're gonna have a reading area we're bringing all of our books uh, tolkien and unrelated to a little reading nook you can read things we'll have a big pile of games you can play we'll have power strips so you can bring your own laptop and sit down and uh heck we can even help you with lord of the rings signing up and getting an account or any problems with mechanics or uh, maybe we can do a jump up raid or something whatever we have time for it if you and uh we'll also have a book swap so if you have any uh old book we have a sort of a take a book leave a book policy we just got a big table over there and um we will have a million crafting supplies we will have thread we will have uh, brackets tools, sparkly things pipe cleaners everything channel your inner noldoran to make beautiful creations still light the eye, but no cursed jewelry. We have that as a yeah, base. Yeah, that really is. We, we, we want to uh, uh, try to cut down on the number of wars which begin uh, in contest over uh, the jewelry. So, yeah, 
Yeah. Especially after last year, you know. Oh, exactly. Right. I mean, of yeah, course. Right. Uh, Not doing you, that again. Right. Exactly. You know who we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. You, you know who was are. just going to yeah. say that. So, yeah, no, obviously we don't want a repetition of that. But, uh, yeah, no, it's awesome. The room requirement is has been a fantastic addition to MythMoot. Um and it has been a wonderful place to to go for uh, you know for quiet conversation for uh, retreating. There are a lot of people uh, at Mythmoot who uh, who like to kind of retire to the room of requirement occasionally to uh, kind of recharge and everything. And there's so many things to read and and and, and look at and and uh, quiet activities to uh, to participate in with people. So anyway. It's uh, it's 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 a really really fun opportunity and 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 Valori will be there all weekend long yep. except when we let her out occasionally uh, like uh, <laughs> for the for the for the live stream on Friday night for instance so uh, yep. which reminds so thank you Valori for that and looking forward oh, as you. always to hanging out with you guys this weekend so. There are a Can't couple. Wait to things. see everybody. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Uh, so excited to see the folks who are going to be coming and for participating with those who will be there on uh, uh, on Mootcast as much as we can. So, but there are going to be a couple things that we're going to be broadcasting publicly, and two things I wanted to, uh, which I were are of particular interest to this crowd. First, um, we're going to be doing. I'm going to be doing a live Lotro stream there, like I've done for the last several years, which is always fun. Uh, doing a stream on Twitch, but also in front of a live audience there. Uh, and uh, this year, as I think I've mentioned, we're going to be doing the uh, the path uh, of the Hobbit. So we're going to start at the uh, the back door of Goblin Town and going past through uh, by the Carrick and then on through into Mirkwood and as far as I can get before uh, they kick me out. So. Uh, that's the plan. That's going to be Friday night starting at about 9 p.m. Uh, but that's starting immediately after our tabletop session finishes. So that's assuming our tabletop session finishes on time. So uh, we'll sort of see about how that goes. So there's a chance we might be a little bit late. But around 9 o'clock is when we're... 9 o'clock Eastern time is when we're planning on that. On Again, then that's Friday night uh, of this week. Uh, the second thing is you guys may remember that I said at one point now several months back when we were looking at the flight to the Ford that I wanted to reenact the flight to the Ford. Uh, and I have a particular, just as I had a forensic interest in the attack on Weathertop, which we uh, reenacted at Middlemoot last year, uh, my forensic interest in the flight to the Ford, uh, as, again, you may remember I talked about before, is that I want to figure out what, especially those four riders who were waiting in ambush, what are they doing? Like, what is their plan? Um, and I think I need to see it in action. Um so we're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a large cast, as many people as are around who want to participate, um, and uh, yeah. So I am gonna stream that. Um, it will will definitely make the video available to Mootcast folks, but we're gonna stream it on Twitch so anybody can see it on Twitch. Um, uh, so yeah, that's gonna be uh, uh, that's gonna be. Uh, a lot of fun. I'm going to be, <laughs> keep in mind, I'm going to be streaming it on Twitch from my phone, which I'm going to be holding and carrying around. So I can't absolutely promise the video quality, uh, as I'm probably going to be covering some distance uh, while I'm uh, while I'm shooting uh, the uh, the reenactment. But we will do the best we can there, and I think it should be it should be uh, uh, very uh, 
uh, uh, uh, very educational. The tabletop session, yes, that's uh, the One Ring role playing system uh, by Cubicle Seven. Um, so we're yeah th- uh, that we're going to be doing, and that starts at Druid's Fire. Remind me, is it six thirty? Right, six thirty on Friday. I think is when that begins. Six thirty to nine. I think is the time slot that we have uh, worked out for. Yeah, seven. Okay, we'll probably start about seven. Yeah. Exactly. Mad Violinist. Ah, see, I was going, I was planning to cast people as, as boulders and I was going to let them decide whether they were physical or spiritual boulders coming down. Uh, absolutely. Uh, anyway, so going to be great fun. Those three things will be available. The uh, tabletop game, the Lotro stream on Friday night, both of those things on Friday evening, and then the reenactment Thursday night. And that's real soon. We're talking like 45 hours from now. We'll be reenacting the flight to the Ford. Um, so uh, uh, we're, that'll, be, that'll be great. You can so join us for all those things on twitch.tv slash SignumU, where many of you are already tuned in right now. So I hope that you will be able to join us for that. Last thing that I wanted to remind you of. So... Thursday night, last Thursday night, I recorded my 500th uh, session, uh, my 500th episode for my Tolkien Professor podcast. And it was a big milestone. Kind of crept up on me, I have to admit. I didn't really notice. And then I was like, holy cow, 500. Um, So to celebrate our 500th, uh, we are giving away uh, three three free Mootcast seats. Um, And if you uh, win the drawing and you don't... um, uh, and you don't, uh, um, uh, and, and you know, and you've already registered for Mootcast, then you can have an, an anytime audit seat instead. But anyway, so go to our Silm Film session, Silm Film Season Four, Session Eighteen. That was last Thursday's the 500th episode, and you can hear about how to enter the drawing at the beginning of that. Um, so you that you can find that on YouTube, and it is on some podcast feeds. Uh, uh, we've been having a lot of discussion about podcast feeds and social media. They are all working differently in iTunes. I am, uh, uh, I am, I am, I am, I am unfriends with iTunes at this point. Uh, I, I have decided that I am, I am, I am their unfriend. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, uh, cool. Anyway, so that's, that's what is happening right now. Um, so... Let us get on to class. We are going to jump straight into things today. So tonight we're looking at the Faces at the Feast, the description of the cast of characters. And it's an interesting moment. I was talking about this, when was it, in Grifflet last week. Um, I was talking, um, um, I was talking about um, physical description and how relatively rare physical description of people is in Tolkien. Uh, We were talking about the question of what color is Frodo's hair, and the primary thing I was emphasizing uh, in response to that question is, this is a question that you would think would be easy, (laughs) right? Like, what is the color of the hair of the protagonist of this book? Uh, But no, it's actually not trivial. Um, uh, And that's very typical of Tolkien. He He spends... far more time 
describing landscape than he spends describing people. Um, we get very, very little detail about what his primary characters look like. We get more of people who are sort of scenery, right? When the protagonists come into the room, uh, for instance, a famous scene when they enter uh, the Golden Hall, right? And we get Theoden and Eowyn and uh, Wormtongue up in the front, and we get some description of them, right? But that's because they're part of the scenery, right? Uh, whereas, again, like Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, uh, even Gandalf, we get relatively little, um, certainly in The Lord of the Rings. So anyway, um, tonight is a, a very interesting passage because it's, it's a moment very rare uh, in Tolkien's writing when he actually goes through and kind of systematically describes, um, not in a quite straightforward physical description, but nevertheless kind of goes person by person describing, uh, describing, uh, bunches of them. So anyway, um, that's where we're headed tonight. And as I say, we are jumping, uh, uh, we are jumping straight into things. So we finished last time looking at Pippin's response right before Frodo comes in. Gandalf has been saying many cheerful things like that, said Pippin. He thinks I need keeping in order, but it seems impossible somehow to feel gloomy or depressed in this place. I feel I could sing if I knew the right song for the occasion. Um, looking at the irrepressibility of Pippin and the, the, the ease with which Pippin brushes off Gandalf pouncing on him, right? As, you know, Pippin is saying something admittedly ill-advised, um, uh, and of course, much more inappropriate, I think, you know, as I was arguing last time than I think he understands, um, but nevertheless, you know, kind of meant in fun. And then Gandalf sort of pounces on it. Um, Matt Violinus is asking if Pippin was trolling Gandalf. Um, I doubt it. I, I, not in the first statement. I doubt that he said that just to just to get Gandalf's goat. I, it's not impossible. I mean, is that the kind of thing Pippin might theoretically do? Yeah, I don't have a hard time believing that. But I, but I rather doubt it. Um, I think instead that Pippin is kind of giving it back to um, giving it back to to Gandalf here. Um, uh, he sees this as just a fun exchange, right? Uh, Gandalf's been saying many cheerful things like that, right? Um, you know, is this kind of uh, fun, backhanded uh, uh, sort of smack back at, at Gandalf, right? Um, and uh, th so that's... Uh, and we talked about his desire to sing, uh, and not knowing the right song for the occasion. Um, that's interesting, of course, if we think forward with Pippin, right? Pippin is going to struggle again with knowing the right song for the occasion uh, when, uh, in Minas Tirith, Denethor at least raises the possibility of Pippin singing uh, to amuse Denethor, right, in Minas Tirith, and Pippin will then feel that he definitely does not know the right song for the occasion, right? Um, uh, but even here, he seems not to be certain, right, about what the right song for the occasion would be. And we can say, oh, well, tra la 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 obviously, right? But Pippin doesn't know that one, right? Um, certainly, apparently, not well enough to sing it. And, uh, and I'm not even sure that that's the kind of song 
that hobbits really sing exactly. Um, remember that when the Tralalali song is introduced in The Hobbit, um, the narrator anticipates that we, the readers, will, f- will think it's silly, right? Um, he uses the word ridiculous to describe the song, right? Um, and so there's this certain, um, by calling it a song, well, they say they launch into another song even more ridiculous than the one which I have, uh, which I have told to you, right? So, um, by characterizing the song as ridiculous, the narrator of The Hobbit kind of establishes this relationship with us, right? Like, we are mature and in the know, right? And we can, we can recognize and acknowledge that that, uh, that song that the elves just sang was was really quite absurd, right? Um, and that feels to me in some ways like the level on which the hobbits also would participate. That is, I suspect that the majority of hobbits would even... I don't even mean like the Ted Sandymans or even the Lobelia Sackville Bagginses uh, uh, or even the Gaffer Gamgees, uh, really. The, I mean, even like the the people who are kind of within Bilbo's circle, like Merry and Pippin, right, would probably consider that song, that kind of song, ridiculous. Um, so, at least anyway, that's kind of my guess. Uh, certainly based on the songs that we have seen seen them singing, um, I would say that... Um, I mean, it's not that the, ho- this, the Hobbit songs are very solemn, obviously, right? Uh, I mean, we've seen with the drinking song and the bath song that they're perfectly capable of singing songs which are mostly intended for fun, right? Um, and which even have some similarities. I mean, after all, like, what exactly is the difference between tra la la lali and ho-ho-ho, right? Um, but I think that there is a difference, right? Um, the... Words of the Ho 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 to the Bottle I Go song um, are enthusiastic, right? Um, And obviously meant to be sung in high spirits, but they're not nonsensical, right? The Elvish song, the Tralalalali song, is this sort of series of random observations, right? Um, I... you know, your ponies need shoeing, the river is flowing, right? Just like, just disjointed, apparently irrelevant statements, um, which express joy and happiness, but it's not obvious why or what they're happy about, right? Um, now, we know that thinking elves silly is a very silly thing to think, based on what the Hobbit narrator tells us. Um, but again, it's different, right? It's di- even, even you know, the drinking song, it's about drinking, right? And so, it that makes sense, right? To the bottle I go to heal my heart and drown my woe. Um, uh, you know, that's that's... A, a logical statement, which makes sense in ways that the Elvish song doesn't, right? Is It is not a nonsense song in any way, right? Um, certainly not in the same way. Um, yeah, so, anyway. I got, this is just me thinking about 
Pippin not knowing the right song for the occasion, it's interesting that the songs that he does know, the Hobbit songs that he knows, whether they be traditional Hobbit songs, whether they be Bilbo-inspired songs, um, I would I would guess, by the way, that the bath song and the drinking song are probably traditional Hobbit songs, not just sort of within Bilbo's circle. Whereas songs like uh, the walking song that they sing, right, that was a Bilbo song. Bilbo taught that song to, uh, and I don't mean the road goes ever on and on. Um, I mean the, the walking song that they sing in chapter three. Um, Still round the corner there may wait a new road or a secret gate, that one. Um, that's a Bilbo song. Right, which is not a traditional Shire song. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and, and so Valoria is suggesting the man in the moon is more akin to elf nonsense. Maybe, maybe. Though, of course, though the man in the moon is whimsical, it isn't exactly nonsensical, not in the same sense, right? Um, because it is the whole conceit of the Man in the Moon song is that it is giving the story behind the nursery rhyme, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, we will... Um, uh, hmm. Yeah. Uh And in any case, when I say nonsense, again, it's it's still it's still different. It's it might be it's fantastical, right? The idea of the man in the moon, right, coming and drinking at the pub um, and getting drunk and having to be bundled into the moon, right? Uh, not to mention, you know, the business with the dog and the cat. Um, Exactly, spiritual boulders. Unlike tra la la lolly, it tells a story, right? So that's what I mean. When I say nonsense, I mean like one line has almost nothing to do with the other. Now, if as you know, if you read my Hobbit book, I don't think it's actually nonsensical, um, but it's 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 very different. The point is that the Hobbit songs are very different. And backing up a second here, the the larger point, the relevance to this moment is that Pippin doesn't feel that any of the songs that he knows, which are clearly a large number, remember he and Mary even made up the song. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, adapted, right? A new verse for the uh, um, uh, We Must Away Our Break of Day song in the, in, the, uh, in the Conspiracy Unmasked. Pippin knows a lot of songs, but he doesn't feel that any of his songs are the right song for the occasion. Um, it could be um, that he just means he feels so happy that like no happy song that he knows could do justice to how happy he feels. But I think it's more than that. I think that he is kind of speaking of the, uh, uh, speaking of the general sort of sense of otherness of being there with the elves. Um, and also, well, it's an interesting point of contrast. I wonder the extent to which Pippin feels... Pippin will explicitly think, right, that the songs that he knows are too rustic for Minas Tirith, when Denethor raises the possibility of him singing there, right? I wonder if he feels that way here, if he feels that the songs that he knows are too simple and homespun and rustic. Um, 
or if maybe there's a different issue here. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I suspect that's probably involved, though I doubt he feels exactly the same here that he is going to feel later on in Minas Tirith. Uh, but it's interesting. Um, Frodo acknowledges his feeling, right? I feel like singing myself, laughed Frodo, though at the moment I feel more like eating and drinking. That will soon be cured, said Pippin. You have shown your usual cunning in getting up just in time for a meal. More than a meal, a feast, said Merry. As soon as Gandalf reported that you were recovered, the preparations began. He had hardly finished speaking when they were summoned to the hall by the ringing of many bells. Um, now, notice, you notice Pippin's kind of double smack at Frodo here. Right. Uh, again, you can tell how happy he is to see Frodo because of how he's given him a hard time. Right. Some classic hobbitry here. Um, uh, you have shown your usual cunning and getting up just in time for a meal. So, uh, um, you know, his uh, teasing Frodo first. Right. You know, the, the, the obvious level of teasing. Uh, right. Of of uh, accusing Frodo of only dragging himself out of bed because he knew there was food on hand. Right. Uh, as if that was the uh, again, like, so we're now recasting the whole you've been recovering from this near undeath experience. Right. And uh, and we're going to we're going to respond to that uh, by uh, uh, by accusing you of malingering until uh, dinner's ready. Um, but the other thing, of course, is the implication when he says you've shown your usual cunning and getting up just in time for a meal, he turns the whole situation on its head, right? There is, a, as Mary is about to acknowledge, uh, there is a feast that is being thrown in Frodo's honor, specifically timed, right? Uh, for when he wakes up and gets out of bed finally. Uh, and Pippin makes it sound as if it's just a, an accident or a bit of cunning on Frodo's part, right? Uh, as if, uh, uh, as if the feast is not, in fact, prepared for his honor, but it's just a meal that uh, uh, that 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 Frodo has uh, weaseled his way into. Um, all, uh, <laughs> all all good stuff. And Green Great Dragon, you're right. Pippin is definitely risking getting thrashed in the tuchus. <laughs> That's so okay. Sorry, brief explanation. Uh, Tolkien made what was close to a dirty joke closest to a dirty joke I've ever seen Tolkien make. Uh, So in uh, Mythgard Academy on last Wednesday, session four of Sauron Defeated, we were looking at the the scouring of the Shire. (laughs) So uh, there's there's this, so you know how uh, English people tend to tend to shorten uh, words, right? Uh, And names of places especially and stuff. So Tolkien was making a joke which was based on the fact that the sort of slang, really sort of the Cockney slang uh, for the word workhouse is workus. Like they would say, like, you know, I, I'm going to be sent to the workus, uh, meaning the workhouse. So uh, he he takes the, 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 the phrase took house and he shortens it to tookus. And then plays on that uh, by saying that the t- during the scouring of the Shire, the brigands, uh, the ruffians, haven't been down into the Tooklands because early on the Tooks uh, uh, grabbed several of the ruffians and dragged them in and thrashed them in the Tookus. <laughs> Go on. That's pretty good. Um, and... Um, 
like I said, I think that's the, the closest the closest thing to a dirty joke I've ever seen Tolkien make. And of course, it's a uh, you know it's ling- linguistically based. Um, but anyway, yeah, he ended up he ended up he ended up cutting that, thrashed him in the tuchus. Oh man. Um, yeah. Anyway, so so, uh, so yes, you're right. But anyway, yes, Pippin is <laughs> Pippin is at risk of getting thrashed in the tuchus here. Um, it's so Mary. Instead of piling on, Mary kind of shifts it back. Right. Um, Mary is the one to emphasize to Frodo that you know this is not just a meal. This is a feast. Right. And then he does. Um, uh, acknowledge the fact that you know the preparations for this began as soon as uh, uh, as soon as it was reported that, that you were recovered. Uh, this is uh, this is in your honor. Uh, Pippin jokingly makes light of it. Mary kind of builds it back up again, right? Uh, they don't between the two of them. They're a pretty good tag team here, right? Um, Mary can or Pippin can kind of tear him down while Mary builds him back up. They don't, in fact, want. Frodo not to know that you know to, to, that uh, this feast is in his honor, and so they do uh, celebrate that. Um, okay, uh, and then they're summoned to the hall by the ringing of many bells. Let's keep going, I'm going fast tonight. Okay, the description of the hall. So this is Frodo's perspective, probably. The hall of Elrond's house was filled with folk, elves for the most part, though there were a few guests of other sorts. Elrond, as was his custom, sat in a great chair at the end of the long table upon the dais, and next to him on the one side sat Gorfindel, and on the other side sat Gandalf. Frodo looked at them in wonder, for he had never before seen Elrond, of whom so many tales spoke, and as they sat upon his right hand and his left, Glorfindel, and even Gandalf, whom he thought he knew so well, were revealed as lords of dignity and power. Okay. Um, Elrond, as was his custom, sat in a great chair at the end of the long table upon the dais. Um, One thing that... One of the things that's immediately interesting to me in this paragraph is the seating arrangements, right? Gandalf is seated at Elrond's side, right? He is given one of the seats of honor. That Glorfindel is given one of those seats of honor shouldn't surprise us too much, based on what we've seen, right? It's it's pretty it's been pretty clear ever since we met him, and it got clearer and clearer as we got to know him better over the course of that brief passage in the Flight of the Ford, that Glorfindel's a really big deal. Right, and so that is affirmed uh, by the fact that uh, Glorfindel is there, seated at his uh, at his side, um, and Gandalf is his peer. Right, is the other who is right there next to him. Um, it's interesting how this kind of rubs off on the whole scene. Kind of rubs off on Gandalf, right? And uh, Frodo is invited to sort of look at Gandalf again, right? Gandalf, whom he thought he knew so well, uh, now revealed as a lord of dignity and power. One of the things that I think is really fun that we can see here, um, this is a really good example of what Tolkien describes as recovery, 
uh, in his essay on fairy stories. Uh, when he's talking about this and on fairy stories, he's describing this as one of the benefits uh, of fairy stories, right? Why, why bother reading fairy stories? What can fairy stories offer us? And one of the things he says they can offer us is recovery, inviting us to see things anew. Right. Things that we have long since come to take for granted and we never even look at twice anymore. You look at them again. Suddenly uh, you're, you know, fa- uh, a fairy tale, a fairy story invites you to look at something again. Right. And to see it anew with fresh eyes. And we can see um, we can see this happening for Frodo with Gandalf. Right. Um, he thinks about Gandalf as a family friend. Right. I mean, he's been around in and out of Bag End occasionally, right, for pretty much all of Frodo's life. I mean, he's uh, he's Uncle Bilbo's old friend, right? That's how he has come to know Gandalf, and he's um, has been relying on him very much more, especially ever since Chapter 2, right? Um, you know, that was a, a pretty big moment with Gandalf there. Remember at the beginning of that scene back in Chapter 2, uh, in The Shadow of the Past, when he is... Um, when he's noticing that Gandalf looks older, right? More careworn than he did before. Um, almost the opposite of a lord of dignity and power, right? Um, he looks, again, like a family friend whom Frodo's a little bit concerned about, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony, that's a really good illustration. Uh, like trees after meeting Old Man Willow, right? Yeah, I bet none of them are looking at trees quite the same way uh, after the whole experience that they had in the old forest, right? Um, yeah, that, that's a that's a good example. Um, yeah, um, and Marianne, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that El- Elrond does know who Gandalf is, and certainly... Um, knows that he is the wielder of one of the three rings, right? Though probably no one else in the room does know that, right? Um, but of course, this is a, this is an important thing not only for Frodo, but also for us, right? Remember, one of the things that Tolkien is kind of both building off and also in another sense, I think, kind of fighting against is our familiarity with Gandalf as well, right? We as readers are familiar with Gandalf. If we've read The Hobbit, we know Gandalf pretty well. But The Hobbit is not necessarily a good introduction completely to Gandalf, right? Gandalf has been growing steadily steadily in Tolkien's mind. Um, It is a long, long time before Tolkien comes to the place where he's going to be thinking about, you know, in theory and explaining that Gandalf is really one of the one of the Maiar, right, who has been incarnated and, and uh, is living among the children of Iluvatar in order to help them here in the Third Age. Um, that's a later idea. But that's a later idea. So that's not in Tolkien's head fully formed when he's writing this passage for the first time. Um, that's not the origin of this passage. Um, but as we've discussed before with the early draft stuff, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing in some ways, right? That explanation isn't what drives this uh, this description it's the other way around right this description and the the way in which gandalf is growing is what demands that explanation from tolkien when he finally sits down and works out the explicit um explanation uh of this of this whole thing um so yeah um 
Gandalf is 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 growing, and I think this is an important recontextual recontextualization for us as readers, right? We might also kind of take Gandalf for granted, even if we've read The Hobbit, right? He plays a big role, obviously, in the story and is clearly a person of some importance in the way in which he sort of meddles in international politics, right, uh, with the whole in the Battle of Five Armies, especially. Um, he clearly has the respect of all of the, you know, he only has to show up and um, hold up his arms in the middle of the battle and say, stop, and everybody listens to him, right? I mean, it's not that he's not a big deal at all in The Hobbit, um, but still, uh, a lord of dignity and power maybe. Not you know he's called a little old man in chapter one of the Hobbit, so um, so it's kind of different. Um, but let's back up a little bit. Um, I forget who noticed this um, that um, Tony was it you who noticed? I oh yeah, Tony it was you um, that. Uh, Elrond, of whom so many tales spoke, and Tony says, most of which we've never heard, right? Yes, uh, exactly. How many stories about Elrond do you know, right? Well, The Hobbit, uh, and this. That's mostly it, in fact, right? Now, again, I'm not saying he's not played any role, that he's not important. Yes, he was at the uh, Battle of Dagorlad. Uh, what did he do there? <laughs> do you know what Elrond did there? Right? Um, uh, whom did he fight? What did he accomplish? Do you know? I don't know. Right? Uh, again, we're not we're not really told. Um, again, not trying to argue that um, uh, that he he survived trifle. That's good. You're right. We do know that. Uh, we we do know that. Um, yeah, so uh, we we uh, um, yeah, I mean, failing to persuade Isildur to destroy the ring. Yeah, well, we don't even know that yet. We've not heard that by the time we get to this, right? He's gonna tell us that in the next chapter, uh, but we don't even know that. Um, so anyway, yeah, there, there, it's just we don't we don't really know uh, anything of him. We have no clue, Bruinier, that he's the wielder of one of the Elven rings, right? We we we've only even heard of the Elven Rings once or twice, right? Um, no idea. Uh, now, of course, if we sit down and think about it, it's not that hard. I mean, Galadriel and Elrond's wielding of two of the three Elvish Rings of Power has to be the worst kept secret in Middle Earth. I mean, seriously, who else would you suspect? Like, who's on your short list if it's not Galadriel and Elrond, right? Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, we know we know very little, and even. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's true. Even in the Silmarillion, Tony, as you were adding, we don't get that much. Elrond has always been an important concept, right? Rather than an important player in any of the actual tales that we know, really, right? Again, even the things that we know about him, like, you know, from the Silmarillion, I mean, right? He's Arendel's son, you know, he... Um, you know, love grew between him and, my, you know, he's kind of foster fathered by Mithros and Maglor right after the third kin slaying. Um, but, but again, that's not a story. That's a factoid, 
right? We know something about his background. Um, it's not a story, exactly, um, that features him. Yeah, Mike, he's a spot on a genealogy. He's a super important spot on the genealogy, right? Um, and that's been his primary role. Um, his primary role, he is like the hinge on which the history of Middle-earth turns. That's been his role from the very beginning, right? He is like the distillation of all of the elvish bloodlines of the First Age, right? Uh, and then the one who remain and, and of all of those, he's the one who remains in Middle-earth, the memory of all of those things, right? The living link, the living connection, back to the Elder Days, like all of the Elder Days stuff. So he doesn't, he's not in the stories himself, but he's connected to all of the stories, right? Um, through his, um, uh, through his genealogy. Um, but, um, anyway, that's, um, now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say Elrond isn't important, right? I'm not trying to say that Elrond is useless. I'm not. I'm not dissing Elrond in any way at all. Uh, I'm just saying Tony's right that it is interesting that we don't know those stories, right? We ourselves have not heard uh, many tales about him, right? Um, just the one, <laughs> Bilbo's, right? Bilbo's tale is the only tale uh, that we have ever heard about him. Um, but even within that tale, it is clear that um, Bilbo's is only one tale which has at least crossed, Elrond, uh, crossed Elrond's path, right? Uh, and which he has in some way, um, you know, in, at least helped or influenced. Um, so, um, yeah. But uh, also... Another thing on which I don't want you to get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that this, this sentence is incorrect, right? Many tales? There aren't many tales of Elrond. No, just, we don't know them, right? I mean, the narrator tells us, right? Or, you know, if Frodo as narrator tells us that Elrond, you know, that he is Elrond of whom so many tales spoke, I'm sure he's right. I'm sure that uh, Frodo and Sam have heard many tales of Elrond. It's just interesting that we haven't, right, is really the the uh, the point there. But, nevertheless, getting over that fact, remember Bilbo again. Um, Frodo is being affected by Elrond here very similarly to how Bilbo was being affected, not by Elrond as much. Uh, we, I mean, I'm not saying that he didn't feel this way. We don't know that for sure. Um, but where we see Bilbo having this same kind of reflection, uh, being affected by the same kind of wonder, as Frodo is being affected by as he's seeing Elrond seated at the head of his table in his house, right, um, is, is, in my mind, more like how Bilbo responds when he finds that his sword comes from Gondolin, right? That this sword that he has been hiding in his pants, right, for so long is now, is, is actually part of, connected to, um, Gondolin, of which so many tales had spoken, right? It is a legendary, it is, a, um, you know, a, this mythic object, right? Um, yeah, so that I think is, is a really interesting thing, that to Frodo, 
Frodo sort of pauses more on Elrond, and again, I would say, of course, Tolkien is drawing our t- attention to Elrond a little bit more here, and establishing him, associating him explicitly with wonder, right? Not just admiration. He's not just looking up to Elrond. He's not just being like, wow, I think he's kind of awesome. Um, he is filled with 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 what, like he is meeting... Um, I don't know. What would you compare it to? Frodo meeting Elrond. The kind of wonder that Frodo experiences by from meeting Elrond is kind of like the wonder we might feel if we met possibly a historical figure, right? Somebody like Abraham Lincoln. Sure, sure. Yeah, I could imagine that. Um, of course, I'm tempted to say, like, you know, to meet somebody like a, a you know, a, a famous sports figure or actor, somebody that, you know, is very famous and that uh, you have a great deal of respect for. But it's more than that. This is more than a, this is not just a fanboy thing, right? There's, there's wonder here. Um, so I do think that the kind of historical, fi- I mean, the, um, I mean, as you guys are mentioning historical figures, um, uh, I, I didn't I, catch that. Okay, Siri, I'm sorry you didn't catch that. Um, I can't help but think I've been... Uh, so, by the way, I recently finished my rewatch of Doctor Who. So, as you know, I was I watched the old, all of the old classic Whos that are available uh, on Amazon, on BritBox, I should say. Uh, and, then, and so, of course, when I finished that, I had to rewatch all of the, all of the new Doctor Whos as well, which I did. Um, and so... That's that this, this that that element that you guys are describing is something that I think Doctor Who captures pretty well when like the companions are taken back and they are introduced to, you know, a famous person from history, right? That they know really well. Um, so that I think is uh, uh, that seems to me a fair kind of parallel, right? But at the same time, I think that um, there's perhaps a um perhaps another element too i'm not sure if this is quite fair i think the wonder the quality of wonder here is somewhere between what you would feel if you got to meet like Martin Luther King, or even Tolkien himself, uh, uh, Mike, as you say. Um, yeah, Irindus, that's what I was getting at. More like going back and meeting Odysseus. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, being confronted with a myth made real is what I'm kind of going for. My first impulse was to say something like um, meeting Santa Claus, or something like that, right? But... That's different because there's no. I, I, there was never really any issue. I don't think that Frodo has probably ever doubted that Elrond actually existed, right? So it's a different kind of thing. King Arthur, sure, yeah, or Romulus, exactly, um, or Robin Hood, yeah, great examples, great example. That's exactly the kind of thing, the kind of wonder, because uh, you see, there is not just the kind of. Um, you know, excitement that you would experience if you got to meet, uh, you know, one of your favorite, you know, living um, heroes, right? Nor would it, 
nor is it quite the same as that sort of amplified by being able to to meet a historical figure. Um, but yeah, that sort of mythic overlay as well. I mean, it would be awesome to be able to meet Martin Luther King. It would be cool to be able to meet Abraham Lincoln, but it would not um, have the same kind of mythic impact as exactly Valori if you are suddenly introduced to Merlin, right? Um, that, I think, is one of the elements there. That wonder, I think, is the kind... So that that seems to me the kind of thing. Um, meeting Elrond is kind of like meeting King Arthur. Um, that's a really interesting parallel, actually. Elrond and King Arthur. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, Tony, I've just been rereading the Space Trilogy myself, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. It is kind of like Ransom's experience, though not exactly. There he's seeing the truth behind um, uh, the myths, right? Though, again, Ransom is does get to meet King Arthur himself, so there's a parallel there. Um, and, of course, they do get to meet Merlin in that hideous strength. Um, but anyway, whatever. Um it's, uh, yeah, and, and I agree, uh, too old not to. Uh, it's cooler because Elrond has, has higher morals than King Arthur. I think that uh, perhaps Elrond is an even more upstanding guy than King Arthur. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Okay. Um, one last brief note here. Um, Glorfindel and his role in this. Right. Um, what is interesting there to me is that, look, let's face it, from the moment he stepped onto the stage, right, the, the sort of theoretical stage, Gorfindel has already been revealed as a lord of dignity and power. Did, did, did anyone not feel that he was powerful and dignified, right? I mean, he is an elf lord from the very beginning and awe-inspiring. Um, again, literally from the first moment that they meet him. So... This isn't exactly a revelation so much as a, um, um, I think, a, a kind of association, right? Um, that is, it's the pairing between Gandalf and Gorfindel, I think, which is so, um, uh, which is so important, which is so effective here. Uh, again, we already know that Gorfindel is a lord of dignity and power. Um, that Gandalf is you know, seen to be his peer, right? Both in his um, relationship with Elrond there, right, in the way that they're seated. Um, uh, and we're not told who sits on his right and who sits on his left. It's presumably Gorfindel on his right and Gandalf on his left, just based on parallelism. I, I assume that that's what's intended there, um, though that's not absolutely explicitly stated. Um, but anyway, the two of them are certainly being lumped together. And again, I think that that's kind of a cue for us. Gore, as I say, Gorfindel from the beginning has been the subject of awe and wonder. Especially, it's like, again, from the first time we met him, like, he's glowing, right? He glows in the dark, this guy, right? He's pretty awesome. Um, luminous, even, right? Um, but... Um, but now he is, uh, uh, Gandalf is seen to be right up there with him. And that is certainly, you know, the old, the guy whom 
you know, Pippin can be trolling right in the hall outside uh, just a few minutes back uh, and which all of the hobbits are kind of used to seeing, right? Even if they don't fully trust him because he's not a hobbit, right? As when they kind of are uh, uh, easily convinced that he might have made off with Bilbo, right? Or conspired with Frodo to get their hands on Bilbo's wealth, right? Remember? So, but still, he's still a familiar figure to the hobbits uh, and certainly to the younger generation of hobbits, um, uh, I, I guess, which really I would include all of them, right? Uh, Frodo included all four of the hobbits that are, that are here, um, he's kind of like a piece of furniture, right? In the Shire, that is. You know, he's not always there, so you don't take him for granted completely, but um, um, but again, Lord of Dignity and Power, not necessarily. Um, yeah, uh, Tony, again, that's a really great observation that Gandalf is kind of uncloaked here, right? There's a certain, there's a certain kind of uncloaking uh, which is in effect here, and I I I, I agree. Um, it's not the same, obviously, as the circumstances of Gandalf's threatened uncloaking back in Chapter One. Um, there, it was really obviously much more about him putting forth his will, him him revealing his power, right? Um, but here, his self, in a sense, is being revealed. Um, let's um, let's go ahead and look at the descriptions. Uh, we get three descriptions. Gandalf, then Gorfindel, and then Elrond. So we're moving up the uh, pecking order here. Gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two, but his long white hair, his sweeping silver beard, and his broad shoulders made him look like some wise king of ancient legend. In his aged face, under great snowy brows, his dark eyes were set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire. Let's just think about that for a second. So to take these descriptions one at a time. We learn more about Gandalf's physical appearance here than we have in a long time. We get more of a physical description in The Hobbit. Uh, um, this doesn't entirely jibe with the description in The Hobbit, by the way. Again, he's called a little old man, and he's not... Although he's shorter than Gorfindel and Elrond... Um, they're fairly tall, so that's not actually saying all that much. Yes, De La Mancha, very interesting, right? That he is described as having broad shoulders. Um, fascinating, isn't it? Um, and his broad shoulders, being the final touch, make him look like a wise king of ancient legend. Wise king of ancient legend. Um, and, you know, that's a phrase I would really like to... Uh, some wise king, right? Uh, I know, let's include that that uh, that word as well, right? Uh, some wise king of ancient legend, not a particular wise king, right? So don't be thinking of a particular story about a wise king and say he's reminding me of that story. It's it's he by saying some wise king of ancient legend, uh, 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 Tolkien is making the description sort of explicitly archetypal, right? Um, wise because of his age, right? His white hair and his sweeping silver beard make him appear wise uh, because of his experience. And he's old, right? And thus probably wise. Um, but he's like a wise king because he is not only... Uh, he doesn't just look like a 
a scholar, right? He doesn't just look like somebody who has locked himself away. He is robust. He is powerful. His shoulders are broad. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he looks like a wise king, looks like someone who has strength to lead as well as wisdom to advise, right? And yes, Ambrosius, that's really important. Gandalf is old without being at all frail. Um, exactly. And that's what's really emphasized by the, uh, by the broad shoulders. Um, yes. Um, that's interesting. Belongsmond is saying the hobbits are seeing him in relation to other tall folk for the first time as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, I mean, presumably the others have seen him hanging around other non-hobbits in the time that they've been there already, but certainly for Frodo, this would be the first time he's ever seen Gandalf standing next to non-hobbits, right? Um, and so, the, it, but, but if you think about it, it's almost counterintuitive, right? You'd think he would be used to thinking of Gandalf as the biggest, most impressive person in the room. Because <laughs> he towers over everybody in the Shire. Um, but, you know, it's almost like he grows when he is set next to the... Not that he actually grows, but again, Frodo's picture of him expands. It's like he's used to... Right, and, and, and dwarves too, Tony, right, exactly, which doesn't help. Um, yeah, Blue Wizard is recalling that you've got to... He's got to stoop his shoulders to avoid cracking his head on hobbit door frames. Yeah, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does walk around kind of hunched over and bowed down. Um, uh, I mean, it's not as extreme as Gandalf in the Shire, of course, but I'm a relatively tall person, and I have grown used over my life to uh, 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 kind of bringing my height down in talking to people who are significantly less tall than I am. Um, not quite as much as my dad. My dad uh, is uh, about 13 inches taller than my mom, actually. And you can see, uh, you know, he, he also has very broad shoulders, but has this almost permanent stoop now uh, because he's he's spent almost all of his adult life uh, kind of, uh, you know, sort of slouching down to be closer to my mother uh, rather than, you know, towering over her. Um uh, so, yeah, I mean, perhaps uh, in, in that sense we're see seeing... But again, I think this is also directly connected with what we saw in the previous uh, uh, paragraph, right? Um, where he, he's now being revealed as a lord uh, of... Uh, of uh, what was it? Dignity and, and who? Power? Yes, power. Um, so now the breadth of his shoulders is something that uh, uh, Frodo is noticing here um, for the first time. And yes... Uh, Grayling, the that that air of power and authority is one of the thing that's one of the things that's emphasized again. Not just a a wise man, not just a wise counselor, a wise king, and not just any wise king, a wise king of ancient legend. That is, he looks not just like a particular. He looks like he could fill in the role for any or one of many old kings in ancient legends. He looks like the embodiment of the wise, strong ruler, right? Um, you could cast him in any number of stories, uh, any number of dramatizations of old stories of ancient kings, right? Um, and that's uh, 
really interesting. JJ, I'm not sure I'd compare him to Solomon, as Solomon is also associated with other things uh, as well, and less so with sort of strength. Um, wisdom, yes, but less so strength. Uh, Tony, kind of like a cross between Arthur and Merlin? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's kind of natural to think about Gandalf in kind of the Merlin role, right? Being the whole wizard counselor person. Um, uh, but but yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, Valori, he is a bit like Vinamoinen uh, in some ways. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, of course, there's his there's his eyes, and we get, of course, due uh, uh, respect paid uh, to Gandalf's eyebrows, which are absolutely spectacular. Um, and but then you get his eyes set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire. Um, everybody knows Gandalf has a bit of a temper, right? Uh, yeah, you know, we just saw Gandalf kind of flare up gently at Pippin, right? Um, uh, but even that, so it's not just his physical presence, even his character, right? Um, even his personality is being seen in a different sense, I think, here by Frodo, right? Um, it's not just that he is, uh, um, he's not just cranky, right? Uh, now he sees his eyes like coals that could suddenly leap into fire. Um, the passion, the fire, the, the sort of contagious fire of Gandalf's spirit, right, is uh, um, uh, the, the thing that he now notices, right? That, again, that whole element of Gandalf is kind of recontextualized. Exactly. He is both subtle and quick to anger. But again, that's being recontextualized here and seen in a very new light in this new setting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, there's something else I was going to say about that. His aged face. Yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to say. That's an interesting phrase, I think. His aged face. Um, Remember, again, Frodo commented on the fact that he looked older. Older in the sense of looking more careworn, right? He's, he's, he's worried. He's being sort of worn down by his cares, by his labors. Um, and Frodo's wondering, starting to wonder, gosh, how old is Gandalf anyway, right? Um, his face is aged. Um, but in this context, notice if Tolkien had led with that, it would have been pretty different, right? Um, I mean, imagine if Gan if the description of Gandalf started off, Gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two, but his aged face, right? Now we're immediately imagining someone who's short and old and right. But no, by, by putting it after uh, not only the uh, the broad shoulders, but the wise king of ancient legend, again, that, that archetypal reference there... Um, now his aged face is completely different, right? Now, again, it sort of cements that idea, uh, not only of strength, but of wisdom, right? His broad shoulders along with his aged face, right? Um, yeah, and good, Ambrosius, everything else about Gandalf is all white and silver, right? Um, uh, we've got his white hair, his silver beard, his snowy brows, right? But his eyes are dark. And that is certainly a pointed contrast. They're dark, 
except when they spring suddenly into fire, right? I don't know that Tolkien is actually implying that Gandalf's eyes turn red, right, like a burning, flaming coal uh, when he's he's angry. Though I couldn't absolutely rule it out as people shining light out of their eyes is kind of a Tolkien thing, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, so we have a, a sudden debate about the aging of elves. Um, yeah, elves certainly can get worn down by worry. The example, where's the example that somebody was just pointing to? Yeah, Tony, about uh, Thingol, uh, right? Um, the winter of Thingol is. Uh, uh, as he's mourning, right, uh, for Luthien. Yeah, we certainly have some examples of elves being sort of worn down with care, right? Kyrdin's beard? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with Kyrdin's beard. I mean, it's white, right? So I guess there's that, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, We do get... So notice in this description of Gandalf, we get a fair bit of physical description. Though it's really only pieces, right? We know that his hair and eyebrows are white, his beard is silver, his shoulders are broad, and his eyes are dark, right? If it comes down to, a, you know, like making a, a, a you know, a police... Uh, you know, uh, drawing, right, uh, of him in order to find him on the street, that's not a whole lot to go on. Um, But still, more than we get. But notice what Tolkien does with that, right? Every single one of those elements is designed not just to tell us, it's not just like to satisfy our curiosity about what color his eyes are, right? It's instead to each one of those things uh, is designed to convey something, right? Um, uh, something. Um, something spiritual. Something. Um, I want to say symbolic. That's not quite right. Um, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, exactly, Tony. We've just been told that they evoke, all three of them invoke wonder, right? And now we're being told not, again, just more, because you're probably curious what they look like kind of details, right? Um, the details that we're getting as the descriptions unfold here are to sort of try to illustrate or not exactly explain in the sense of explaining away, certainly, but to kind of contextualize the quality of the wonder, right? Um, it's one thing just to say, oh, they are he's revealed as a lord of dignity and power. What does that mean, exactly? And do they all ha- hit you in the same way? No, they don't. And here, is, here are the different ways in which, uh, in which they hit you. Um, 
Yeah, good, Mike. It does tell us how Frodo's observation of Gandalf has evolved. Um, you know, it's definitely changing, and that definitely does seem to be an important thing. Um, okay, let's go on to Glorfindel. Glorfindel was tall and straight. His hair was of shining gold, his face fair and young and fearless and full of joy. His eyes were bright and keen, and his voice like music. On his brow sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. First of all, what physical details do we get? He's blonde. He's blonde. We do get that, right? His hair is of shining gold. He's blonde and tall. Yeah. And not a hunchback, apparently. <laughs> right? He's tall and straight. So he's good posture. Good posture. Um, his voice is like music. That doesn't tell us. I don't know that that would help me pick out his voice in a crowd, necessarily. Um, yeah, very little of this description is interested in his physical person, right? Um, though it starts that way. Glorfindel was tall and straight. His hair was of shining gold. And his face was fair and young and fearless and full of joy. His face is fair, so he has a beautiful face. His face is young. This is important, right? As he is ancient, right? As we know. Um, but his face is young. Uh, his face is, in addition to being beautiful and young, is fearless and full of joy. Um, Tony's wondering if his new body looks younger. Yeah, I mean, it's true. He, you know, his... Uh, his fair may be ancient, but his fro is relatively new, right? Um, he, he did he did trade in the old one, after all. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, he got the new model clearly. Um, yeah, and uh, too old not to. That's a really excellent question, especially coming right after the hair of shining gold. The question is fair. What does the word fair mean in this in this context? Because it is very common uh, in older English prose. I mean, like Victorian prose for the word fair not to mean beautiful, but just to be a physical description. Um, those of you who did the Mythgard Academy Dracula class with me will remember this came up all the time. Right. Remember the three vampire women in Dracula? Uh, two were dark and one was fair, meaning two were brunettes and one was blonde. Like, that's what it means, right, when he says that. So, like, is she beautiful? Yes, she's beautiful, but that's not what he means when he says she's fair. Um, um, she is fair and also, uh, also, uh, well, of course, it's Dracula, so she's voluptuous, right? Uh, uh, meaning something quite different, but never, never mind. We won't go there. The point is, the word fair does mean light, light-colored, right, is the, the sort of old denotation of that word. Um, however, we have lots of examples of Tolkien using the word fair in the slightly more modern sense of beautiful, right? Um, so, yeah, it could mean that Glorfindel is pale-skinned. 
like that he is his his skin is very pale um i tend not to think so though i think it means beautiful um and um and again i think that because the word fair, some somebody do some uh you guys can do some searches. It would be interesting to see this, but I, uh, I think the, how many times is the word fair used to mean light colored in the Lord of the Rings? Um, when it's not explicit, like fair haired. I mean, remember, like, you know, fair has been used as the opposite of foul, right? Um, he's taller than some and fairer than most, yes. To describe Frodo, yes. Which means he's more attractive, he's more beautiful. Um, that, I don't think, means he is more blonde than most. I think that that means he's taller than some and fairer than most means he's more attractive. Um, Frodo's cute, uh, is what Gandalf is saying there. Um, he's not ugly. Uh, so you'll know him by his non-ugliness, right? Um, I don't think, I disagree with you, and I'm prepared to fight, uh, that that does not mean that Frodo is blonde. Um, I think that it, that, that is, a, that is I think, designed to be a compliment uh, to Frodo, um, especially in the context of that sentence, and especially a sentence after uh, uh, Gandalf has just been teasing him about his appearance. Um... um is he more pale complected? No, because he's uh, uh, that's contradicted. Uh, but his complexion is described as ruddy uh, earlier on in that self same description. Um, so no, he's described as ruddy. And uh, uh, anyway, so I I I I don't think that he's uh, fair in that sense. Um, but uh, anyway, I I, I, I I think that fair in Frodo's description means beautiful. Um, and again, remember in that same chapter, we've got, or as I said, the foul and fair uh, thing with Strider, right? Um, looking foul and feeling fair. Um, fair is clearly the opposite of, uh, of, of foul, of ugly there. Um, so anyway, yes. How many times does the word fair mean blonde in Tolkien? I'd be interested to see it. I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to see what the data says. Um, and in particular, um, I wonder how many times the word fair is used of elves and elvish things. This might not be something you can just look up in a hurry, uh, as there will doubtless be a bunch of examples to look through. Um, uh, maybe somebody can post on the forum about it, and we'll look at the data later on. Um, but I, I think, all things considered, my suspicion is that... Um, um, yeah. Um, and Trifle, again, I would, I, I would just... Let's say disqualify. I'm more interested in the Lord of the Rings here than in the Silmarillion. And the primary reason for that, uh, it's not that the Silmarillion isn't relevant and I don't want to totally discount it as a data point. Um, 
but Tolkien is deliberately employing a different rhetorical register in the Silmarillion. And so, therefore, his word usage... You can't treat the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings as if they're the same, any more than you can treat the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings as if they're the same in terms of how Tolkien uses words, right? So to say he uses this word in this sense in the Silmarillion, therefore he probably uses it in that same sense in the Lord of the Rings, it's possible, and sometimes that might be true, but I'm always a little leery of that. We have to, we have to be careful and contextualize that because sometimes I think that that's not true because again, there's a shift that there, there's a registered difference between those two. So when I'm looking at words and I want to contextualize, what does Tolkien tend to, to mean by this word? What kinds of meanings does Tolkien tend to attach to this particular word? Focus first and foremost on the Lord of the Rings. You can go outside in addition, but first always do an exhaustive look at the Lord of the Rings itself uh, and fortunately, we have plenty of words uh, to choose among there. Um, uh, so, yeah, Pontine, I was pretty sure fair would come up a lot in The Lord of the Rings. So it, it's going to take a little study to map out how it's used. Um, so it's OK if you if you don't have an answer during class here tonight. Um, but I would I, I think that would be a really interesting thing to look at. Um, yeah. And certainly there are times that it can be both, Matt. I agree. I mean, Though, I'd be a little bit careful there. I mean, it, it's there are two. I, you know, uh, Matt mentions Glorfindel and Eowyn as examples of two characters who are fair in both senses, right? Who are both blonde and also beautiful. Um, but that doesn't necessarily convince me that he's meaning the word in both senses um, when he's using it of them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Aiden, I agree with you. The, um, uh, the 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 word "fair" being used to describe things like rooms and buildings and stuff uh, almost certainly means beautiful, right? And I, yes, I agree. Probably not light. I mean, fair uh, meaning light colored is almost ex- exclusively. Is that quite right to say? That's a big word. Uh, it generally, let me back off from exclusively, it generally uh, refers to hair, right? And blonde hair is what is described as fair. Sometimes you can have a fair complexion, pale complexion. But again, it's usually, I'm trying to think of any examples. Have I ever in my life heard somebody say that this is, you know, when describing a thing, not a person, but a thing, that it's fair in the sense of being light colored? Maybe flowers, right? But I, um, yeah, Tanuviel the Elven Fair, Catriona, is a wonderful example of the clearly meaning Elven Fair. That's a beautiful word, right? Especially since, of course, we know Tanuviel is not fair. She is, uh, she is, she is, uh, dark, not fair, uh, as far as her hair color is concerned. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, anyway, um, exactly, Mad Violinist, she is explicitly, explicitly, uh, has shadowy hair, that's exactly right, um, okay, so, be interesting to see some data on fairness, but I think all things concern, uh, 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 concerned, I think it's pretty safe to say, 
that Glorfindel is hot. I know a lot of you probably didn't need that much convincing that Glorfindel was hot, but I think he's pretty hot. Uh, and I think I feel comfortable in asserting uh, that uh, uh, Glorfindel was hot. And uh, young and fearless and full of joy. And to me, that last combination is the sort of the most revealing thing that we've learned so far about Glorfindel, right? He is fearless, but he is um, the quality of fearless that he is. He's not defiantly fearless. He's not belligerently fearless, right? Um, you can imagine a lot of different kind of flavors of fearlessness. Somebody who is bold, right? Somebody who is brave. Um, he is fearless and full of joy. Um, and the, that combination is essential for understanding Glorfindel especially, I think to some extent, uh, there's, uh, in my mind, something of a window into Tolkien's elves in general there uh, as well. Uh, yeah, Blue Wizard, Tolkien-like. Uh, yeah, in some ways, in some ways. Um, though Tolkien takes delight in combat itself, right? Um, with which I identify uh, very strongly myself. I, like Tolkien, also laugh while in combat. Uh, but, um, uh, but, but, but that, I think, is different, right? Um, fearless and also full of joy. Like, his fearlessness is grounded in his joyfulness, and the two of them are, um, are close together. Um, yeah, yeah, Marianne, I agree. He's experienced the worst that can happen, so what does he have to fear? Um, his his joy is a joy which is really looking at the world in a very different context, right? Yeah, yeah. De La Mancha, I agree. His fearlessness is less whimsical than Tom's, right? Tom Bombadil is fearless too, right? Clearly very fearless and also full of joy, though again of a different quality. Tom doesn't hit you in the same way, right? It's not the same kind of wonder. That's why we're getting these descriptions, right? We've seen many wonders. The hobbits have seen many wonders since they have left the Shire. Um, what makes these different? What kind of wonder are these? Um, yeah. His eyes were bright and keen. Notice now we've left physical description completely behind, right? Um, his eyes are, what color are his eyes? Don't know, don't care, right? His eyes were bright and keen. That's what matters, right? Um, yes, keen meaning, meaning sharp, keen meaning penetrating, right? When you look at Gorfindel, you can tell he is seeing through, you can't hide things from Gorfindel, right? Um, Gorfindel sees through to the heart of things. And again, we, we saw this in action, from the beginning, right? He sees Frodo and he searches his wound and immediately can say, I can see some things going on here that you can't see, right? Um, the keenness uh, of his uh, of his eyes has been an important uh, thing. Um, but, um, but his eyes are also bright, right? And I don't know. I feel a kind of parallel there fearless and full of joy and bright and keen uh, in some ways. 
Um, not a very close parallelism. I don't want to lean on that too much, but um, there is a light within him which comes out in his eyes, right? Um, and he's just been described as full of joy, and so therefore I can't help but imagine that brightness which sort of flows out through his eyes as being like, you know, an upwelling of the joy, an overflowing of the joy uh, that is within him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mad Violinist, what a wonderful question. Um, noting the contrast between Gandalf's dark eyes and Glorfindel's bright eyes. That is a that is a fascinating observation. Um Notice the thing, Mad Violinist, that the two adjectives describing Gorfindel's eyes have in common. They are both outward trajectory um, words, right? They're bright, like light is emerging from them. They are keen, as if their glance could, uh, could, could cut or puncture things, right? Gandalf's eyes are dark and they're set under his brow. So we have his, you know, Gandalf's enormous eyebrows, right? His enormous snowy eyebrows. And underneath those eyebrows are his dark eyes. Um, it's like Gandalf's eyes are pulling in, right? Gandalf's eyes are taking things in and Gorfindel's eyes are shooting out. Um, Gandalf's eyes on occasion shoot out. Fire, Right. They leap suddenly into fire. So, like, fi flames can emerge, at least figuratively, from Gandalf's eyes, right? So it's not that Gandalf's eyes are merely inert, but they have these two different states, right? And the resting state of Gandalf's eyes seems to be, um, I don't know, sort of absorbing? Uh, um, and yeah, Mad Violinist, that's another way to think about it. Gorfindel's power is open while Gandalf's is hidden in the shadows. Um, but, you know, his power is not necessarily less. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that makes some, uh, some sense to me. Um, the cloaking versus the revealing. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, it is certainly true that, um, Tony, as you say, uh, Glorfindel is not cloaked. Right. He doesn't have to uncloak himself. Uh, he goes about uncloaked all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and his, so his eyes were bright and keen and his voice like music on, um, this of course has both a simple, and a more profound meaning, but I, I don't think I need to explain much the more profound meaning, right? The simple meaning is that his voice is... Also, his face is beautiful, his voice is beautiful, right? Um, his attitude is beautiful, uh, but his voice is beautiful, but it's also like music. It, it has a power in it, right? Um, we know that music is the sort of original vehicle of sub-creative power. Uh, and Gorfindel's voice is, is, is like that. It has, it's full of that kind of, that kind of creative or, or sub-creative power. Um, I think that that, that seems pretty, uh, that seems pretty clear. Um, 
Yeah, Tony, I agree. That's one thing that I would also disagree with Rob Inglis about in his unabridged recording of The Lord of the Rings. He tends to give all the elves higher voices. There's no, like, deep-voiced elf uh, in his repertoire. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any exceptions to that, Tony. Probably the lowest timbre of voice that he gives is exactly Valori Galadriel, because Galadriel, we're explicitly told, has a voice that is lower than woman's want. Um, and so he probably gives her the lowest voice of any of the elves that he voices uh, in his recording. Um, anyway, yeah, but I agree. There are certainly elves that have very deep voices, no question. Um, anyway, um, and then my final, my favorite parts of his description are, are, are at the end when we have totally left physical description behind, right? On his brow sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. Um, on his brow sat wisdom. His brow uh, is, first of all, that's a, a, an uncommon word, not an unknown word, but it's an archaic word, an, an uncommon word. Um, and um, anyway, so he, on his brow, sits wisdom. His forehead is like the throne upon which wisdom sits, right? And I love that, this idea of, like, it's, he doesn't own wisdom, right? Um, he doesn't embody wisdom, right? Uh, he is the vessel of wisdom. You know, he is like the, uh, he is like the, the triumphal car in which wisdom sits while going on, on procession, right? That is, that is, that's like Gorfindel's head, right? Um, yeah, Valori, it is like a different kind of star in his brow in a sense. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that wisdom, he isn't just wise, right? Wisdom, wisdom uses his head like an easy chair, right? Uh, you know, just like everybody has their favorite chair where they feel most at home, right? That is what Gorfindel's head is to wisdom. <laughs> I just, I just love that. Um, uh, on his brow sat wisdom. So yes, Ambrosius Aurelianus, a really important point. Um, uh, Glorfindel does combine both youth and wisdom, right? We got the wisdom from the age of Gandalf, his aged face, his white hair. Um, with Glorfindel, uh, wisdom dwells with him, right? Despite the fact that he uh, that he looks so that he looks so young. Um, yeah, um, on his brow sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. The lack of parallelism here is really interesting and makes the second one quite unanticipated. On his brow sat wisdom. We've already, like, elevated to a totally new rhetorical register, right, with that jump. His eyes were bright and keen and his voice like music. On his brow sat wisdom. We, we are... Uh, there are very few places in the entire Lord of the Rings where we are operating at a higher rhetorical level than Tolkien is right here. Right? On his brow sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. Um, the So wisdom sits on his head. Um, strength, though, is not being personified. Right? Um, how do you understand in his hand was strength? 
if he just said that, if he just led with that, right? Like if we skipped the brow, if we just went, his eyes were bright and keen and his voice like music and in his hand was strength, it would just sound like his hand is strong. Like there is strength in his hand. Like his hand is, is strong, right? It would be just kind of a, a, a slightly indirect roundabout and therefore sort of poetical um, way of describing a strong hand, right? But after on his brow sat wisdom, we've established now we are in the we're at that high rhetorical level. One of the elements of that high rhetorical level is personification, right? Wisdom is being personified as sitting on his brow. Strength is also being, if not personified, objectified, exactly mad violinist and uh, somebody on Twitch too. Yeah, Naraya. Um, it is like he's holding a sword. Like, strength is something... It's, it's not in his hand. It doesn't just mean that his hand is strong. I mean, it does mean that. But that's not just what it's saying, right? In his hand was strength. Strength is a thing that he takes up. Just as wisdom is a thing that sits on his brow, so strength is a thing that he takes up in his hand, right? Um, as if he were wielding strength itself. It's not just a passive attribute of his. It's not just one of his stats, right? Uh, it is like it, it. It is a thing that he holds, that he wields, right? Ooh, Ambrosius Aurelianus, that is fantastic. First, Tarlonio says it's not that his hand is strong, but strength is under his control. Yeah, yeah, he wields strength. Strength doesn't work through him, right? He wields strength. But Ambrosius Aurelianus says um, his strength serves his wisdom not the other way around, right? Yes. Um, wisdom sits on his brow. So he is the... Wisdom is the doer, and he is the recipient, right? He is passive in relationship to wisdom. Wisdom rules him. He is the throne from which wisdom rules, right? Um, but wisdom is the actor there. He is the actor when it comes to... St strength does not take him up, right? He takes up strength. Um... Uh, so yeah, that's uh, um, that's definitely, I think, a, 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 a really interesting. That, that's why the parallelism, I th the lack of parallelism, rather, uh, that shift from the active, the active to the passive in the sense when, when you think about it from the point of view of the of the attribute, wisdom and strength, right? Um, that turnaround, I think, is 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 really significant there, and it it and uh, I think that uh, Ambrosius has it exactly right there. Um, it's about the proper relationship between those things. Strength is a thing which must be controlled, a, a, a something which must be wielded properly and responsibly. Wisdom is a thing to which to submit, right? Uh, wisdom is a thing by which to be guided, right? Now, Naraya, I agree that wisdom could be sitting on his head like a crown. Uh, too old not to is thinking of that, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Though it's still, um, that doesn't necessarily change my view of it, though. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that that's probably the literal metaphor there. Um, but the point is, wisdom is still the subject of the verb. On his brow sat wisdom. So, right, if we were to just diagram that clause, right, wisdom sat where on his brow. 
right? Um, so wisdom is the doer of the action. Um, strength is not the doer of the action there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and and wielded like a sword, yes, that does seem to be appropriate, exactly as, um, as Naraya was thinking originally there. Yes, um, uh, Yes, yes. And it, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay, let's move on to, uh, uh, let's move on to Elrond. And Mike, no, I, I, uh, if, uh, we were writing a parody of this, it would be fantastic to have, uh, Gorfindel have two have two pet budgies, one named Wisdom and one named Strength, one of which sits on his head while the other one uh, uh, sits in his hand. Um, and by the way, I don't know how many of you have read the old National Lampoon, or yeah, the, the old parody, uh, the 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 Bo- Board of the Rings. Um, Board of the Rings is awful. I really dislike it. Not just because it's such a bad parody. It is such a wasted opportunity. I love parody. Parody is is a is a favorite genre of mine. Uh and they totally mailed it in. Uh it is it is I mean there are a couple funny moments, but not only is it not funny, it's not thoughtful. It's so disappointing. And it's still the only like real parody of the Lord of the Rings I've ever read. I mean, I'm sure other people have done something, but there needs to be, there needs to be a better parody of the Lord of the Rings. There is so much potential, uh, all totally, uh, untapped, uh, by the Lord of the Rings parody. Yeah. Bon. Yeah. I did probably do that rant at LA moot. Uh, oh man. Um, but, um, yeah, it's so disappointing anyway. So yeah, I, I, I did the, 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 the budgies, Mike. That went. That's a. Uh, that's very good. Okay, on to Elrond, and then we'll go on our field trip. Um, the face of Elrond was ageless, neither old nor young. Though in it was written the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful. His hair was dark as the shadows of twilight, and upon it was set a circlet of silver. His eyes were gray as a clear evening, and in them was a light like the light of stars. Venerable he seemed as a king crowned with many winters, and yet hale as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. He was the lord of Rivendell, and mighty among both elves and men. Okay. Ageless. Neither old nor young. Uh, So, of course, there's a certain... Like, starting off with this, there's a certain... um, uh, Goldilocks element, right? I mean, we've had old in Gandalf, and we've had young in Gorfindel, and now we get the one who is neither old nor young, right? Um, so, yeah, Terlonial, the very first thing that we get is the combining of the attributes of Gorfindel and Gandalf, right? We've seen these two different um, kind of embodiments of the marvelous, these, 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 these archetypes embodied, right? The archetype of the wise king of ancient legend in Gandalf. Um, and yet with this like sort of fire within him, right? And then on the other hand, we also get, um, Glorfindel, the young, the shining, the bright, the keen, the joyful, the musical, right? The strong, 
um, and the wise. Um, Elrond, on the one hand, is both, but notice he says um, Elrond is also neither, right? He's both in a sense, but he's also neither one of those things. He is different, right, from both of those things. Um, He's neither old nor young. So let's try to capture it, Frodo. Though in it was written the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful. Okay, so he's not old, but he's been around, right? He has seen many things. His face shows, in his face is written the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful. What does that mean, exactly? I I mean, I, I understand what it's sort of getting at, generally, but I mean, what is it when it says these the memory of these things was written in his face? Yeah, Terlonial, that's exactly what I mean. Does it mean his lines on his face? Literally? It might mean that. Right? I mean, if these memories are written in his face, because we're not talking about his eyes yet, right? It's not like when you look in his eyes, you can um you can, like, see his wisdom and work. Eyes are different, right? And we get eyes in a kind of a different category, and we'll get to his eyes in a minute. Um, But I'm not sure exactly. I guess one of the things that I'm a little bit less clear on is, and this is going to sound stupid, what exactly means by face? That is, like, like his skin? Like his, his, or is like, is, is this just like overall? is he's starting off with an overview, right? Here's the full effect. When you take all of the individual effects of Elrond's face, I'm going to go on and talk about... I'm going to talk about his hair. I'm going to talk about his eyes, right? Um, But, you know, sum it all up, and this is the impression that you get, right? And it is written the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful. Is that what he means when he says the face of Elrond was ageless? Um, De La Mancha, yeah, could it be his expression? Right? Is there something in his expression which bespeaks the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful? Um, I... It's all in the eyebrows. Yeah, I can believe that. Um, yeah, I am, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think that I'm inclined to believe that It means his face. Like, I think he's describing, like, the lines on his face. His actual skin here. Here's a reason I think that. It's the word though, which leads me to think that. 
The face of Elrond was ageless, neither old nor young. So, you look at Elrond. Is he old? Is he young? How do you know? Right? How can you tell? Why can't you tell whether he's old or young? Well, one of the ways in which you can usually tell is by the lines on people's face. Right? Um, and so his his face is ageless, neither old nor young, though in it was written the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful. His face is not a blank slate, right? When it, it looks neither old nor young, it's not in that sense, right? Um, it's not... Um, uh, it is not merely smooth and featureless, right? If it were smooth and featureless, if he had no lines on his face, he would just look young. But he doesn't just look young. If he just had lots of... If his face were aged, as Gandalf's face is described, then he would just look old. But he's neither, right? He's neither old nor young. His face clearly looks young, but I think he also is lined, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, everybody stop talking about Hugo Weaving. There's <laughs> a big Hugo Weaving conversation going on over here. Stop! Uh, because it's not helping. Um, stop thinking of Hugo Weaving and think of this, because Hugo Weaving's face is not neither old nor young, right? Hugo, Hugo Weaving's face looks his age, okay? Uh, at least roughly. Um, uh, the thing that Tolkien slash Frodo is trying to capture here is something clearly, from the beginning, something which defies normal categories, right? Notice how in both cases, um, in both cases, he pairs conflicting things in an attempt to capture what Elrond's face looks like, right? Think of an old face, then think of a young face, and it's neither one of those, right? Um, his face is full of memories, glad memories and sorrowful memories, right? He's neither old nor young. He's both glad and sorrowful. Right? These things all combined together. Um, I think that these things are written in his face. Like, in his expression. And it's like, you can tell. Like, you can tell from his face. This is someone who has smiled and laughed a lot uh, over a long time, right? But he doesn't look old. He looks young, right? And yet he is... Um, uh, he is not young. He's not just, but he doesn't just look like someone who has laughed and smiled a lot. He looks like someone who also has experienced much sorrow. And you can read that in his face as well, right? Um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, Mike says it's tricky because elves are already two things at once. Um, thinking of Sam's words, so old and young, so gay and sad. Exactly. Remember that Sam was trying to capture exactly this kind of thing before when giving his impression of elves, right? Um, and in the end, he was like, that, like, he, he kind of gave up on trying to capture it. But when Sam, and Mike, thank you for reminding us of that passage, when Sam was trying to capture it, it was through these combined opposites. They are simultaneously these different things, right? And we see that in Elrond. But as Mike goes on to add, Elrond is not only those same simultaneous contradicting, contradictory things, young and old, gay and sad, um, he's also elfin man as well, right? Um, so in Elrond is combined all of the most, you know, sort of complex and contradictory things, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, his hair was dark as the shadows of twilight, and upon it was set a circlet of silver. Stick with his hair for now. Though, let's remember that this is combined with his eyes syntactically, right? We get both of those two things set side by side, separated by a semicolon. His hair was dark as the shadows of twilight. Hmm. A simile. Gosh, you know what I didn't notice? There are very few similes in these descriptions. I'd have thought that there'd be more, right? Set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire, that's a simile. His voice is like music, that's a simile. That's it. It's the only two sim. We've gotten one simile per so far. That might not strike you as strange, but it is very interesting in that the, a lot of these... Um, uh, oh, no, like some wise king of ancient legend. That was a simile, too. Um, uh, anyway, his hair was dark as the shadows of twilight. Um, the point that I'm making about the similes, Tolkien has not, especially not like this, um, look, like some wise king of, uh, uh, of ancient legend is not a normal simile, right? That's a comparison to a mythical concept. Right. Normally, similes are descriptions, right? Comparison to some kind of physical thing that you can relate to, right? Um, it was as hot as fire, you know. It was, uh, it was, it was as 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 light as air, right? I mean, that, that's that's what you you're trying to describe an abstract thing, but you uh, so you compare it to a physical thing. That's kind of the function of similes. Right. Um, his dark eyes were set like coals that could suddenly leap into fire. Is a little bit more like that, right? You know, we're, we, we've that we're, we are comparing the sort of abstract, um, you know, fiery quality of Gandalf's eyes. I, I should say even like uh, incendiary quality, um, flammable quality of uh, uh, explosive even quality of Gandalf's eyes uh, as being like a coal that can suddenly leap into flame. Um, uh, so that's more like a, more of a classic uh, simile. Voice like music also works similarly. Um, 
here we get that right away. His hair was dark. How dark was it? It was dark as the shadows of twilight, right? Um, we get an immediate comparison. We're supposed to associate, we're supposed to think of, his hair makes you, should make you think of the shadows of twilight. Okay. Um, and upon it was set a circlet of silver. What does that make you think of? Now, you've been prompted, right, to think of the shadows of twilight. And then you get a circlet of silver. So what should you be thinking of? What does that look like? A crescent moon! Exactly! Right? So you get, you, you've, you, you've got a, a silver crescent in the shadows of twilight, and then his eyes were gray as a clear evening, and in them was a light like the light of stars. Right? So you get the shadows of night, the crescent moon, and the stars all there in this sentence, right? Describing him. So he, his head, right, is being associated, his aspect, as we've, uh, uh, you know, is is being associated with all of the night, right? Yeah, as Mike says, that's the elfiest thing I've ever heard. Exactly. He is like, I am the embodiment of elvendom, right? Um, it is extremely elvish, uh, this whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, dark as the shadows of twilight, circlet of silver. His eyes are gray as a clear evening, and in them was a light like the light of stars. I wonder how many stars. I don't think each one is, notice this, the, the, his eyes are not being compared to stars, right? The light of stars, of an indefinite number of stars, is in his eyes, right? In them was a light like the light of stars. Another simile, right? Notice how many similes we get. Uh, having not gotten, having gotten comparatively few similes up to this point, we now get as the shadows of twilight, uh, as a clear evening, and like the light of stars in this one sentence, right? Um, so yes, Tony, not only do we have this as sort of the general association between elves and the twilight and the gloaming, to use one of Tolkien's other favorite words, um, it is also, yes, that associating him with the twilight of the elves. This has been Elrond's job. This, that's his primary job, right? I mean, his primary job description from the earliest Silmarillion texts up to the present is simply uh, to be um, uh, to, to be the the legacy of the ancient days those ancient days that are fading and passing right he is like the end of the day um, he is not the noontide of the elves he is not the morning of the elves he is associated with the evening of the elves and the fading and diminishing of uh, of the uh, uh, of of the elvendom on earth, and yes, Bricktails absolutely is his daughter is much more explicitly so, right? Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Valori, I agree. Elrond and Gorfindel are literally like night and day. Yes, they are. Um, the shining gold and the the young and full of joy, uh, the bright, keen eyes, Elrond's eyes are presumably, they have light in them, they're presumably bright, and presumably also keen in some sense as well, but we don't get that sense of radiance, 
right? The radiance that can bore right through you that we get from Gorfindel's eyes, we get the, the sparkles, the distant sparkles, like the light of stars, right? Um, very, very different. Similar, but very, very different. Um, yep, I agree. I agree. Um, Arwen is very much his... Um, How do I want to say this? She is like the distillation of this element of Elrond, but it is a central part of his character as well, right? It's almost like Arwen... Hmm. I never thought of this before. In Tolkien's earlier drafts, I'm talking uh, like Lost Road area um, between the writing of The Hobbit and the writing of The Lord of the Rings, uh, when he was doing the Numenor stuff. It's coming up with a Numenoric concept and first had the idea of the Battle of the Last Alliance. The War of the Last Alliance. Tolkien was torn. He really... As soon as he thought of Numenor, he totally wanted Elrond to be the king of Numenor. Um, and so he wrote some versions of the story in which Elrond did not remain in Middle-earth, but instead went to become king of Numenor. And then, of course, there are other times when he still wants Elrond to be the role that he always was in, like to be that final distillation of of you know the elder days of the elder kin, uh, kindred remaining in middle earth um and so he kind of wanted both he wanted elrond for both roles and he went back and forth on this so what did he do very sensibly he cloned him right that's when that's when elros was invented elros was 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 not originally there elrond was an only child originally and then he gets cloned he gets a twin brother and so he, essentially elrond and elros is talking like actually getting to kind of have it both ways right um the sort of new idea that i just had in Inventing the character of Arwen, which, just as the character of Elros comes in very, very late in Tolkien's conception of the Elrond's position in the whole, in relation to the whole First Age, is completely established before, you know, again, the, the twin comes in to sort of clone Elrond so he can be in both places at once, essentially. Um, so Elros is, 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 for that reason, a very late addition to the story. Uh, lovely addition. Love Elros, but but again, a late addition. Arwen is also a super, super late addition to the Lord of the Rings. Um, Elrond character, or Arwen's character literally does not exist until Aragorn needs a, a wife at the end. Um, he's going to marry somebody. Uh, as soon as Tolkien got out of the field of Cormallon, he seemed to realize there needs to be a wedding, right? This isn't done until Aragorn has a wedding. Um, and as soon as he needed to have a wedding, he marries the daughter of Elrond. Um, and so Elrond's daughter uh, is created at that point. Um, so again, point is just that Arwen is also a very late addition to the story. And I think that we can see a kind of parallelism here. Um, just as Elrond and Elros are sort of clones of each other, there's a sense in which Arwen and Elrond are clones as well, or, you know, they're kind of a refinement, a sort of splitting of the ideas. Um, Elrond, Elrond was that primary even star character, right? He was, he is the twilight of the elves. He embodies the twilight of the elves. Um, again, that's his 
whole job description, right? But Arwen is the one who, so after Arwen exists, now Elrond and Arwen have different roles, right? The two of them stand on that divide, right? The divide between the Elder Days and the Dominion of Men, right? But one stands on one side of the line, and they're, they're right next to each other, and they're just alike in this way, right? Both of them are embodiments of this dwindling, this fading, this, you know, the, 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 uh, the eventide of the elder race, but one is the, the end of the old world and the other is the memory of it into the, which is then brought into the new world. Um, that I think is, uh, uh, seems to me to make a lot of to kind of understand this parallel and how why she gets the name even star which comes fairly quickly um not instantly but fairly quickly once he uh decides to insert Arwen um th- that she is the even star um that that name the even star comes almost as as, as soon as he names her Arwen I don't she's ever she's never named just Arwen uh Arwen Undomiel Arwen even star comes immediately once it comes um yeah yeah and I would urge us to remember that yeah Tony exactly the even star is also the morning star right uh so for those who are standing on the other side of the line like Elrond right she is the even star she is the end of the day and the beginning of the real night right um but of course if you're on the other side, right, if you are second generation in the fourth age and looking back uh, at Queen Arwen, she's looks looks more like the morning star than she looks like the even star, doesn't she? Um, yeah, and that's really lovely. Um, anyway, I think it's this is one of those things where I was about to say it's important to remember that's not true because we don't have any access to this information when we're reading it. Let me say it differently. Uh, when we do learn more, like thanks to the wonderful gift of Christopher Tolkien in getting to read uh, his earlier drafts, we know that he wrote this passage long before Arwen was invented, right? And so it helps us to see this even star idea, this eveningness, the way in which Elrond is like the physical embodiment of the gloaming of the twilight. Um, That belonged to Elrond first, before it belonged to Arwen, right? Um, And she is, you know, sort of the the kind of the spin-off, the the refinement, Um, not in the sense of purification, but in the sense of clarification, right? Um, Of that, of a, of a particular strand of that concept. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. Um, venerable he seemed as a king crowned with many winters, and yet hail as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. We could paraphrase that, right? Um, we could paraphrase that sentence by saying... He is ageless, neither old nor young, <laughs> right? On the one hand, right? That is both, once again, we have this, 
these two different things, right? Um, venerable, he's old, he's wise, he has he commands the not only the level of respect but the kind of respect that you would give to someone who has uh, lived long and well and much and earned your respect, right? Um, but he's also hail as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. He is also, he's at the top of his game, right? He is in his prime. He does not look old. He does not look, uh, um, Gandalf's shoulders may be broad, right? Um, but he's still all white-haired and everything, right? And his face is aged. He looks like a very robust old man, but he still looks like an old man, right? Elrond does not look like an old man. He is venerable without looking old, because he looks hale as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength, right? Um, Not young. He doesn't look like a teenager, right? Uh, He looks like somebody who is absolutely at his physical prime. Um, And I agree that this is, um, Mike, this is is sort of more man stuff in a sense, but... um, uh, I I mean, Hale is a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength certainly does make me think of men rather than elves. Absolutely, I agree with you there. Um, and venerable is also a, not only a king word, but a human king word, venerable. Because, like, I mean, Gorfindel is venerable in the abstract, right? Like, venerable in the sense of one whom you would venerate, right? Um... Uh, worthy of respect, worthy of honor. Uh, but that's not um, a word that I think we'd use of Gorfindel. Right? It doesn't really sound like anything that's said of Gorfindel exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Um, venerable. Theoden is venerable, right? Um, it usually, with one exception, that is, the exception being if you are referring to uh, a figure in the Catholic tradition who has not been sainted, like, of course, everyone's favorite, the Venerable Bede, right? Um, When you're talking about the Venerable Bede, you don't mean he's old, right? He is being venerated, Literally, right? Um, he's not a saint, but he is. Uh, uh, he is. He is. He's the venerable. It's an official title. With that one exception, um, the word venerable always means old, right? Always. Uh, I'm trying to think of. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, of times when anything is called venerable and it doesn't mean also, it doesn't also mean that it's old. Right. Um, Tony, there, there have been movements to, to canonize the venerable bead and like, I don't want to keep a good man down, but I really hope he doesn't get canonized like St. Bede. I'm sorry. It's not the same. He'll always be the venerable Bede to me. Let me just say, even if they say, even if they canonize him, he will always be the venerable Bede. Uh, I I couldn't possibly change that at this time of life. Um, But anyway, 
um, the word venerable does, is not used very often in the Lord of the Rings. Can anyone find another example? Is the head of the king uh, at the crossroads, the statue of the king, is it described as venerable? I have a vague sense that that word comes up then. Uh, somebody, uh, somebody look it up. Zephan, you got it? Is it, is, 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 is the word venerable used anywhere else in the Lord of the Rings? I think it is. I don't think this is the only time it's used. But I'd be interested to see where else it's used. Anyway. Um, okay, let's see. Um... Notice the difference between both the venerability and the kingliness of Elrond. And yet, once again, we are incorporating, like neither old nor young, we're doing the, like, well, it's not the Goldilocks thing, right? Um, you know, uh, with Goldilocks, you've got the hot porridge and the cold porridge, and then the porridge that's just right. It's neither hot nor cold, because it's warm in the middle, right? Elrond isn't that. He's both at once. It's not that he's neither old nor young because he's middle-aged. He is neither old nor young because he's both old and young, right? And uh, so, too, now we get descriptions which recall more directly um, the uh, descriptions of the two earlier figures, right? Gandalf is venerable like some wise king of ancient legend, right? And so, too, Elrond is compared to a king crowned with many winters, which is very similar. And Glorfindel is tall and straight and fair and young and fearless, right? Uh, and, and in his hand is strength. And, and Elrond is described as hale as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. So, um, you know, again, we see the two of those things combined together in Elrond's description. And yet, um, neither is exactly the same, Right? Um, a king crowned with many winters. What's the difference between a king crowned with many winters and some wise king of ancient legend? It's interesting because Gandalf's comparison, right? Gandalf's king simile is actually more distant, I think, right? That is, it alludes to a mythic figure that is kind of more abstract, some wise king of ancient legend. Um, a king crowned with many winters. Well, that's something like any king who has ruled for a fair amount of time could be described as a king crowned with many winters, right? Um, yeah, Mad Violinist, you're right. Gandalf's king description insists on wisdom, a wise king of ancient legend, right? Implying that his wisdom is legendary, right? Crowned with many winters kind of means old, right? Um, it doesn't say anything about wisdom. He's just crowned with many winters. But I agree, Tony, the way that that... Um, 
the way that that works. So venerable he seemed. How venerable was he? As venerable as a king crowned with many winters. So as a king crowned with many winters is the simile. But within that simile, this does not. This is not a normal simile, right? It doesn't help. Like within the simile is contained a metaphor, right? A king crowned with many winters. Okay, so winters crown. Right? So the, he wears the winters like a crown, right? Um, you know, thinking about like you know, I, I, um, I, the the words of the old hymn uh, uh, jump into my mind. Crown him with many crowns, right? Um, th- normally, that's the way you. It's a kind of repetitive way to complete that phrase, but that's like the normal thing, right? What do you crown somebody with? A crown, <laughs> right? That's kind of the kind of the thing that you crown them with. Um, so in this sense, winters are the things that he is being crowned with. He's crowned with winters. He's not crowned during winters. He's not just has been crowned for the duration of many winters. Um, Again, it does imply age, but more than that. Um, Does it suggest that... um, uh, Does it suggest that um, he does have gray or white on his hair? Could that be part of the... Bricktails was thinking that. Possibly. Possibly. Um, I tend not to think so because his hair is just dark as the shadows of twilight, we've been told, and not suggested that there, that he's got some salt and pepper action going on there. So the fact that his hair description, which just came in the previous sentence, contradicts the idea that his hair is white or gray or contains white or gray... Um, Therefore, I think we have to take crowned with many winters to be purely metaphorical and not merely uh, physical description. Um, okay, oh, good. So Zephan says the only two references, the only two times that the word venerable is used, that he can find the word venerable, uh, is with, right, with Dian, right? He is... Uh, 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 very old, venerable, and fabulously rich. Yes, yes, exactly. He will be described as that very soon. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, good. Mad Violinist is thinking this: the fact that like he should have white hair but doesn't is kind of the old and young thing together again. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Notice the one other time then that venerable is used in this chapter. No, it's not in this. Ch- is it in this chapter? Yes, it is in this chapter. Um, uh, is very distinctly associated with old. Now, notice it's not identical, right? Diane is old, venerable, and rich. He's those three things, right? You can be old without being venerable. Goodness knows, right? Um, but he is very old, right? And that is the immediate context for uh, describing him as uh, uh, as as venerable. Um, okay. Crowned with many winters. I'm still thinking about that. Valori, uh, I was Valori. I think was remembering. 
Uh, I've lost it. Um, yeah. Totally lost it. Somebody was remembering Elrond's description in The Hobbit, in the first edition of The Hobbit. Um, he is described as being kind as summer in The Hobbit that most of us read. In the first edition of The Hobbit, he was described as kind as Christmas. Uh, oh, Matt, was it you? Okay, there we go. That's why I couldn't find it. Yes, good. A call back to his being kind as Christmas. Yes, good, good. Um, Avalor, you did too. I thought I remembered it with you too, so you and Matt were both thinking about that. Yes. Um, the Winters uh, is an interesting callback to the kind as Christmas, which was part of Elrond's initial uh, description. Um but, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then he is Lord of Rivendell and mighty among. Okay, and Hale is the tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. Um, the strength, of course, recalls the strength that is in Gorfindel's hand. Um, but notice that he is in the fullness of his strength. Right, not that he's controlled by strength, not that strength is controlling him. Right, to say that more directly, but um, he is in his strength, right? As like he is, uh, it is the it is the state that he is in, right? Hail as a tried warrior who is in the fullness of his strength. Um. Notice that although Glorfindel has strength in his hand, and I agree that if I had to choose a metaphor uh, to, like, a, a more direct image, it does sound like he is holding strength like a sword. But, um, he's not described as a warrior. There's nothing really warlike the fearlessness and strength are the only two things that suggest war-likeness in uh, um, in Gorfindel, right? Elrond is... It recalls that, but he is explicitly compared to a warrior. He's like a king, he's like a warrior, and I go back to... Um, uh, to... Um, oh, Mike who is saying, uh, talking about how this, both of this, this sentence sounds like more, uh, ties him more directly to human stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he is the Lord of Rivendell and mighty. He was the Lord of Rivendell and mighty among both elves and men. At the end of this description where we see Elrond combining all of these things, and this is Elrond's job description, right? To be the distillation of all these things, of all things that are elvish, of all things that are mythic, of all things that are part of this uh, older world, right? Elrond brings all of those things together. That's Again, that's been his job from day one. Um, he is the Lord of Rivendell and mighty among both elves and men. Um... Awesome. Good. Um, so, thinking of the, the, the one last comment on the hail as a war, a tried warrior in the fullness of his, not just a warrior, a tried warrior, 
right? He doesn't look like a newbie. He's not like one of those people who uh, looks really, has really impressive athletic skills but can't really play, right? He is a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. Um, and again, I'm, I'm remembering all of those stories about Elrond that we haven't heard. I wonder what they might include. Um, we have a tendency to imagine Elrond as being totally stationary, right? We know it's been a while since he's left Rivendell, but was he always stationary? Was he always merely a lore master? Uh, you know, was his job always being at the head of the table? Um, I think that, uh, you know, clearly some of those stories that were told about him could certainly involve uh, uh, him in more action sequences than we might be want to imagine. And yeah, he did make it to the slopes of Ordruin. He's one of the last few standing there at the very end. Uh, so there's all kinds of reason um, to uh, uh, to imagine that, right? And even, um, yes, Tony will be told that he's the Herald. Um, even that, I think, looking back on it, I think that that word kind of lured me into imagine him as taking a basically passive role in the fighting as well. Like, he's the herald. Like, my job is to, like, yell things and carry the banner, right? I don't actually participate in the fighting. I walk around behind Gilgalad is, is the image I always had of what it meant for him to be uh, Gilgalad's herald. Um, but um, but I think there's, there's clearly more to him being Gilgalad's herald than that. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, excellent. Yeah, Tony, exactly. Um, Aonwe is the herald of Manwe, and he is the greatest in arms of anyone in Arda. Yes, exactly. So clearly, being the herald doesn't mean that you are not involved, right? Very, very clearly. Very, very clearly. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Okay, anyway, all right. That was. I wanted to make sure we got through. To the, we've we've kind of gone a little bit long in our class session here tonight because I definitely wanted to get through uh, our descriptions here and definitely to kind of take our time here. This is a a really important uh, uh, passage, I think, uh, and very unusual. So I wanted to I wanted to think about that. Um, so next week we will get to Arwen. So we've kind of talked a little bit about Arwen, and we'll see we'll see a bit more of that as we move forward. Next week, not next week, next time, which will not be next week, because next week, so I've got Mythmoot this weekend, and then I'm going to be away with my family uh, next week, so we will, the next time we will meet will be, well, of course, hopefully, Mythmoot festivities. The next time after Mythmoot festivities that we'll be together uh, will be on the, what is it, the ninth, uh, the second Tuesday of July. Um, but yeah, so next time we get together... Prepare yourself. I'm going to defend Arwen. I think a lot of people don't like Arwen and sort of dis Arwen. And she was an afterthought. Is kind of fair. She was a very, very last thought of Tolkien. Um, uh, she got added literally at the last minute. Um, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm fixing to defend Arwen next time. Uh, so. Thanks. I'm going to say goodnight to the folks on uh, Twitter and goodnight to the folks on the Talon. And we are going to uh, uh, we're going to uh, uh, shift uh, over to 
completely to Twitch for our field trip, which will be a relatively brief field trip tonight. Uh, but so I'm going to shut those down. Thanks, everybody. And Good night. Here we go. Go ahead. Good evening. Hey, how are can, you? Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yep. Sure can. All right. Cool. Yeah, my girl R one. Okay. Next time. Oh. Yeah. Next time. Next time. Yep. Next time. Um, okay. Yeah, I made a note that next week's class is canceled, and we pick up again on the. So. That's right. I think it's the ninth. I think it's the ninth. Yes. Yeah. July second is next. Oh, tech Wednesday now. That's right. That's right. Okay, so let us head off back to Calendame, having thought about all of these elvish uh, things. Yes. Let us go back over there. Yes, yes. It is nice to be going to a place that is right, easy right. to get to. But you're talking about all those uh, literal jokes, too, like having the two budgies named Wisdom and Strength, and it's like you could do the same thing with Elrond, have him, like, Maui with the, the pictures of battles on his forehead Yeah, and well, his face. Right, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Tattoos or, or like things written, right? Yeah, so you'd have like you know, yeah, yeah. actual prose on his face. Picture pointing to Sildur, an arrow going, "I'm with stupid." <laughs> right, right. Lots of memories written on his face. Um, yeah, I, um, uh, yeah, you could definitely do that. Well, you know, it almost feels to me like in, they did that in Rankin Bass. I mean, I don't think they intended that to be parodic. But the, 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 you know, halo of stars that you? circles around Elrond. Oh, and in the Hobbit one, not Lord of the Rings, yes. Yeah, 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 and the Rankin-Bass Hobbit. Um, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, the, the cartoon. Um, yeah. It's not quite, I mean, the stars are in his eyes, not around his head. But, you know, that, that it's almost like the halo of, of shining stars around Elrond's head in, in the cartoon film is like a parody of that. Or it's either like a kind of silly literalization of that paragraph or like a parody of that paragraph, right? Like, let's just, okay, his head is like twilight. Let's just cut to the chase and, and have like, you know, the stars <laughs> be like orbiting his head. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you made you made me want to dig through all my old hard drives and see if I could find that Lord of the Rings parody I'd written in board. It was supposed to be a corporate espionage film. Well, the ring was uh, was a computer hack. Right, right. Yeah, that see, would empty I, there money is into a so, secret account kind of thing. There is so much potential for a good parody. It really needs to happen. I am sure that lots of people have written parodic things of the Lord of the Rings. But uh, but a really good thoughtful parody like that thing which Board of the Rings is not is uh, is what I would really uh-huh. love to see. Um, yeah. I, I think I picked that up. Uh, I read one page and I put it just back on the shelf and never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> as is true of many of the things that I wrote in college as well. Um, all right. So that, let us... the thing in college is good. <laughs> oh, the thing in college is good. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yeah the board no, of the Rings. No, I, I, I kind of kind of want to do that again. The Board of the Rings of the National Lampoon. I was not impressed. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, where are we headed? Yep. Um, okay. So we're gonna head. Oh, um, we're going uphill because I want to head north. There's that bizarre wall that I don't understand. Um, it's a load-bearing. wall. 
I'm still yeah. not convinced of that, but um, <laughs> it's to post no bills. Yeah. See, Edith, I my problem is I did not find Board of the Rings hilarious. Like it has a couple of good moments, but most of it was just so disappointing. Even the funny Stop parts are not as that. funny as they could have been. I just, oh, that's my problem. I don't know. I read stuff like that, and I'm like, were, were things funnier in the 80s? I don't know. Or, <laughs> when was that written? Was it in the 70s? 70s? Maybe. 70s, maybe, yeah. It been in the it's 70s. Like, yeah, it was definitely that sort of tweet, so proud of themselves kind of stuff that I didn't like. I don't yeah, like. I don't know. Sorry, country. I'm just kind of pausing and looking back across the countryside here. There's the the party house up on the hill we already went to. So let's go up towards uh, Duoland. Yeah. And I want to go to that... Um, where's the farm? It's we on the we are side. in the middle of the festival right now, just to warn you. So. Oh. oh, we get the lovesick elf up in Doyle. Uh, we actually have a little romance for once. Really? Among these elves who plan really terrible parties. Oh dear, so they just... They just they're not kicking it like they were back in Gogo Ed's day? Yeah, I know. I swear all the all the Noldoran are planning the parties and it's, it's all like, oh, would you like a scroll? Oh, let's go to the <laughs> library. And it's just, no, I don't really. Can we have wild woodland parties with a lot of drink? Yeah. Hey, and what's the Franduil knows how to party. Right, right. Franduil knows how to party. I agree. Yeah, I think that's one of the ruins on the Dwelin side of the river. Can we get up there? I want to get up there. Is that a tower? Uh, yes, but like we have tower. to go. We have to cross the bridge, and we have to go up on the grass to get. Okay. That might be the that might the be the vineyard. And that's the uh, that's the housing area, right over there. Yes, it's. I love the detail you can get from here. It's one of yeah. the better housing areas you can see from, from a distance. That's very nice. It's <laughs> very nice. I like the rotunda up on the hill overlook. Yeah, yeah. Nice little scenic gazebo. Everybody loves a gazebo on the edge of a cliff. With no ceiling. That's Does right. Does this bridge have a ceiling? Nope, not a covered bridge. Unless there's glazing in there, which down by the docks it kind of looked like there was. But anyway. I don't, I'm not I'd have to look back again. I think it's, I think it's open because when it rains, I think you get rained on, but... It, right. it's, it could be either. Yeah, okay. So, I want to see what else we can discover. In particular, I'm going to be interested to see what we can... Oh, we've, oh, we've got a road heading well, up there. That's we got, this is the road to the vineyard. Okay, so, the yeah, this is where the tower was. So okay. It's near the vineyard. Cool. I definitely want to go to the vineyard because one of the things I'm looking for here, as I, as I look through the different Elvish settlements and things, I want to look at the old versus new, the, those two different layers of that's right. Uh, the, ruins and architecture that we've found. Periods. Yeah. You notice the bridge looked like it was at the old school instead of the new, at that gold filigree. Sorry, it was a wolf over there. I thought it was a cow for a second. Um, I don't think I've ever mistaken a wolf for a cow before. Uh, sorry. Much harder to milk. Yeah, well, certainly. I'm looking to see if we can get 
kind of looking down, coming towards the edge of the cliff here. Uh, yeah, yeah, looking yeah. down at the bridge. Oh, no, we can't see the bridge from here. Oh, the bridge is down another oh, level. Oh, yeah. Right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, there was another water. Okay. Because this is the tower we were looking at from the bridge over here. I think so. I think so. Huh. Oh, look, it's all covered in vines and stuff. I don't think I noticed that before. Yeah, so this is definitely a ruin. But it's different from the other ruins. Aha, look at the vaulted doorways again. Yeah, we've got the... Some sort of weird arabesque on the second layer. The second level there. Yeah, very different. We got the gold inlay pattern on the gray stone in the oldest... And the roof's the same. Yeah. But you've got the um, the gothic arches, right? Uh-huh. And, you know, both on both the, the ground floor and up there on the sort of the third layer there. Wow. you got Fleur de Lee carved into the door here. And we've seen those in several places, most notably Rivendell. Yeah, this does look very similar to, like, a building you'd driven up, apart from the crack. Yeah. Okay, so what is the story here? This is unlike either one. It's not like the towers that are, you know, new, the towers that folks live in. That tower across the way, that looks like oh, this, too. Di- it's... It's 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 di- it's different, but I I would say stylistically, I think it's similar in that I bet we can get up there. We've got the oh yeah we can yeah we can I see somebody running up there. Yep. Well we'll we'll yep. go over and take a closer look in a minute. Um, from here it looks similar in that. that well, I think on the third floor we can still see some sort of gothic arches, right? But the roof tiles are all blanched. Yeah, I mean, that roof, the tower is different. Did we see a tower? Do we see pointy bits on the top of a tower like that? Does I don't think we have. Down in Calendim. Well, not not multiple. I, I'd have to I, I I think we get one spire on the top, but not multiple ones. Yeah, I'd have to go back. The third story there, those look like gothic arches which incline me to believe. Absolutely. So before we go over, I would expect to find that that tower gazebo combo on the other side of the valley would be part of this period, matching this tower. Not matching, it's not identical, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I theorize we're going to see equal wear and tear, at least. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we've got a tower on this side and a gazebo tower on the other side. Um, here we've got vineyards. Anything down here in the valley? I don't think so, right? No evidence of construction. Uh, not till you get up to the top of the water. Not till you get past all the the. Right. There's okay. the, yeah. There's the farmhouse further on. Right. And I think that's a that's a. That's a living farmhouse? I'd have to go see. I don't think it has this level of damage. Whoa, this is banged up. Yeah, these pillars do not look new. 
looking at these like shield things at the top. Do you think that these arches are from the same period as those towers? I think they are. Could tell you. Where are you looking? I think I ran on ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just looking at the arches along the path. Oh, I see. Yep, I see. Uh, gosh, what are they? Why would you have those just standing by themselves? It's just decoration, I suppose. Yeah, decorating the path. We've seen elves do this before in other places in Middle-earth, in Lotro. Um, Usually they have a lantern in the middle, don't they? Sometimes, yeah, not have... always. But, see, no, this is... Yeah, these are definitely or, original. They look a little worn down, and then these stairs uh-huh. are the same <laughs> level of corrosion. And look, they have a lot of copper deposit to grow up in the middle of this gazebo. And more, the gazebo, the roof of the gazebo has exactly the same about fall off the cliff there. Um Makes, makes me wonder if we're going to see this this kind of damage and uh, decoration on the stuff north of Thorns. Yeah, I don't know. The, but see, this stuff, yeah, so the roof of this gazebo matches the gazebo tower on the opposite side of the valley. That's definitely, yeah, that, that's definitely the same. Uh-huh. Um. Now, here's an interesting thing. Look at this. Well, these columns look new, but That's this archway over here is definitely brand just new. Just what I was going to say. These first <laughs> three are definitely old. If we look at this carefully, we can see the, like, you know, what is it? It's not algae. It's not underwater. Lichen and... Mildew. Uh, yeah, mildew or whatever. And then you've got these brand spanking new, but in the same style, right? So they've yeah. imitated it. But this is clearly what the new model looks up. like. Yeah, it's maybe they just restored this one and haven't restored the others. Um, uh, if I recall, this was an old vineyard that was starting to be useful again, and that's how they found it overrun in the first place. Why did they restore that? Maybe I don't remember exactly. And this house it's been, is old. It's been so long. Yeah, old and clearly matching the doors and the gothic arches around the doors uh, and those kind of turtle, not turtle shell, but sort of scaled ceilings or roofs, rather. Uh, and then... The red, though, unlike like the tower. The red, like the tower near um, the the Venturer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Oh, look at all the vines all over it. Right, oh, over here, yeah. 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 It's like it's not even like fresh ivy, it's dead ivy all Dead over. ivy clinging to it, yes, exactly. Exactly. So okay. So what was this place then? I think a it home? was a vineyard and now it's a vineyard again. I mean it it'd be a place for you'd have your place for the farm farmhouse, right? Like maybe like this is where the wine was made and bottled and Perhaps. stuff and then the other one. There's a big manse up ahead, too, that I think that might be better shape. I'm not How sure. Do we get, oh, we have to go around up and over the... Yeah, we get around th- over the pond. Through, through the gazebo, right? We go. There's uh-huh, a, the path the goes through the gazebo. Yes, it does. The path goes through the gazebo, yes. and then... Oh, we got another new one. Is this, this new? Up. This is old. The, that one's old, and this one's this new. This one's old, this and one. that one's new. 
So we have two restored arches. And then this house, another old house, dead ivy. Same thing, it's got a tower. Uh This tower clearly matches the gazebo across the way. Same concept, open at the bottom floor, then those arches, then those, and then the kind of... You know, the spires, the triple spire up at the top. There's no door over here. No door in the house? Patio. Well, there's no door there. Yeah. Let me see. Is there a door in the house? I don't see a door. Well, they bricked up the door of the house. And this arch is old, too. So they've Maybe. refurbished one archway in each Two place? Two pillars. Archways. Two archways. And a while. And then the what? goblins attack, and we got it got soundtracked. Yeah, maybe they just decided to start with. Maybe those maybe it was the growing season. Maybe maybe it was the growing season. They had to wait until uh, the burning season, and then they they'd have time to restore the rest of it. They're probably just sleeping on camp beds right now. Maybe one of those is functional, and the other one is not is residential. But they both look. I don't know. I don't see any obvious difference between the two that would suggest that. If anything, this is the grander oh, of noticed, the two, clearly. Yeah, you notice they got the, the extra spires and the and the buttresses on top? Yes. Or vaulting, yeah, whatever it was, vaulting, I don't know. Yeah. We get into fangly bits, I forget all the words. Yes. What I'm looking for here, there was a tower, a modern tower. An elf tower. I can't see it from here. Hang on, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go back over to the other house. The, this one looks very similar to the top of the building with the, the gazebo up on the hill across. Yeah, the, the gazebo on top of the hill is identical to the tower on this side, uh, like at the left Especially of that the other building. If you face it. Yeah. As far as I can see, it's identical. From over here, there was a. There it is. There it is. That tower. Looks like it's transmitting radio signals. Can we get up there? No. Which one? Tower. Up the hill. Up the hill. That's an old tower. It looks like it matches the very first tower we saw at the entrance of the... of the way. Like when we first came into the valley. Yep. Yeah, I got the goth- I can see the recessed gothic arches on the ground floor. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, okay. Old tower up on the hill. Old Oh, yeah, I see it. Smaller house. Wow, that roof is nuts. Uh-oh. Roof That roof looks a little different, doesn't it? Can't get it? back up the hill. I'll have to go down. All right. Um Yeah. All right. So, we have what seems to be three. So, let's ignore the restored arches, because I really don't know what to do with the restored arches. So, ignoring the restored (laughs) arches for a second. uh, And again, all that I can think of is some kind of of interrupted recovery process there, uh, as you were suggesting. Um, So, okay. 
Ignoring that, though, for a second, we seem to have a distinct third layer of architecture here. Um, in Kelendim itself, we saw the new stuff and the old stuff, which we were dating to the old party time when the elves were just kind of wandering around here having a good time, and that's what the old party house up on the hill across the way over that direction was. <laughs> Uh, and then party time was over, and we were speculating that that coincided... There it is. There's the old party house. You can see it well from here. Yeah, there it is. Um, so that was the party joint, and that was, and we were speculating that that was, that was basically sort of second age elves, right? Um, and that maybe okay. the partying stopped here at the War of the Last Alliance, and so we're looking at a third age thing, and the elves are returning toward the end of the third age, and so they've rebuilt Kalendim relatively recently, certainly in elvish terms. Um, but then this valley, these are... This is clearly residential. Somebody lived here. This is not a party spot. Clearly. Yeah. Party's over. Party's over. Party's over, or party's permanent, one way or the other, depending on how you look at it. So, how would we relate <laughs> these things? The this is a much more complicated style. I mean, there's so much more. I mean, almost too much, really. I mean, these different le le levels are like, wow, it's very busy. This is very, very busy. And yes, this tower does look identical to the tower up on the hill back there above and behind the two houses. The weird little mushroom crap on top. Yeah. Hmm. But it's not totally unlike the style of the modern Kellendim. Yes. So. After the age of the roving elvish parties was over. Some elves lived here. Probably not a tiny number. This is probably not just like one family. Um, oh, no, you need a lot to run. Right, and you have like the two large houses down there, right? Plus the towers, which we've been speculating all along were residential. Uh, and although the one across the way, the gazebo one, might possibly be decorative and or functional, this one seems like another of those residential towers rather than lookouts. Yeah. It doesn't even have yeah. windows up at the top, so it can't be a watchtower. Um, uh, the, the third one's got letting up there. Yeah, the third one does, but I mean the top top. Which oh, has, yeah, the why would you build a watchtower and not be able to look out the top top, right? I mean, yeah, come on. Uh, anyhow, so, okay. I know, it's a gorgeous view. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some elves, after the party time was over, some elves settled down here, clearly. And would they have abandoned this place and moved down to Kelendim? Did they just die? Did they Maybe sail the soil away? got used up. Yeah. 
Hmm. Well, we'll have to see. This is very interesting, uncovering this third layer. And now as we go into Dualand and the rest of it, I'll be really interested to see where it stands. Um, if, what uh, the styles Yeah. Where we get... Um, what kind of mixture of new, old, and I guess we would have to call this middle style now, we get. Notice how there's no architectural damage, like no towers... Um, like on their sides or broken, right? There's no ruins per nope. se anywhere here. Um, there are cracks. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely it, cracks running through. Exactly. But not like, a, and as we can see from here, you know, at back of the party yeah. joint, you know, towers toppled and everything. So that's clearly much older. Yeah. Do you think maybe the, um, the parties ended actually not at the War of the Last Alliance, but the parties ended maybe at the uh, at the fall of Celebrimbor, at the wars with Sauron in the Second Age, so that the parties it's quite possible. the party era maybe the party era is the first half of the Second Age, and the parties oh, ended in the middle of the Second Age, so that this architecture could date from the end of the Second Age. And that could explain why this place was abandoned because, like, they didn't come back from the War of the Last Alliance. Yeah, no, that's possible. That could work. That could work. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. I'll be again as we go <laughs> as we go forward. Now we'll have to we'll have to see. Now Dualand is going to be this really interesting uh, uh, architectural study, right? As we uh, try to sort all this stuff out. Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let folks go. Okay. As I, oh, oh, I do have one thing. I oh, do have yeah. one thing to add before we leave. Okay, sure. Um, one of the one of the people next to the stable master was talking about. Uh, remind me to talk with this elf, so and so, about storage on my upcoming journey to the west. So elves do need luggage. Luggage. We have confirmed the yes, luggage. He was complaining See? about. He was talking to a cooper about storage issues. That's right. He needs barrels for all of his stuff. There you go. There you for go. his wine, specifically for his wine. Well, right. I mean, obviously, you want to take that with you. It's a long voyage. It's a party boat. I think. Is it a long <laughs> voyage? Probably a long voyage. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. Belongs Mond, I doubt they had strict weight limits on the bags. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know how many... Uh, how many casks of wine you get to bring on before they start charging you. But, um, but anyway, yeah. Duty tax. <laughs> yeah. Duty tax. Yeah. <laughs> or do, do they have a duty free shop down in Kellendem is really the question, I guess. He's bootlegging. He's bootlegging <laughs> Middle Earth wine. Yes. Bootlegging into the blessed realm. That's just wrong <laughs> in so many ways, but I don't know if they got rum runner loss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let us count the ways in which that is deeply wrong. Okay. <laughs> anyway, thank you everybody for joining us tonight. Uh, please do tune in for uh, uh, Myth Moot Fun here over the over this weekend. Uh, Thursday night, the reenactment. Friday night, uh, the two gaming sessions, uh, one in Lotro and one tabletop. Uh, and then we will be back again. Um, uh, we'll be back again on the ninth uh, for our next session. Uh, thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Can't wait to see everyone at MythMoot. See you yeah, later. That's right. Bye. It's going to be fun. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. 
If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.